to the beautiful toilet. Um, yeah, I'm back. I'm joined today by a certain Gio Panichetti, um, someone who uh, ever since I became privy to your project, I feel like I've felt like a kind of a kindred spirit. I, I felt like what you're doing is very similar to what I've attempted to do, but, uh, but mm. you're much more disciplined and uh, much more uh, um, consistent about it. And so <laughs> I figured that it was uh, only a matter of time before we cross paths. And uh, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, no, thank you. It's an it's an honor. Um, I like to I think I like to be more disciplined. It's always like the battle, um, you know, every mm -hmm. every day is something. But yeah, I mean, people for some reason, people think I am a content machine, even though I don't I don't know. You have, your, you have an ideal about it, but then life gets in the way. Well, you seem so. to have a pretty regular release schedule at the very least, and you have a weekly yeah. podcast um, and but um, in any case, uh, before we get ahead of ourselves, by way of introduction, I suppose, uh, you know, you're well known as the uh, the uh, dissident right modern artist, uh, a, a classically trained painter, you might say, um, you know, someone from uh, from the art world in particular, for those who are unfamiliar, those few who may be unfamiliar. Um, and also, uh, you have your weekly podcast with the Prudentialist um, and y your Substack Geo's Content Minded Corner. Anything else that I'm uh, neglecting to plug? Um, no, that's good. I mean, well, Content Minded is my flagship, but um, yeah, me and Prudentialist every week we do Digital Archipelago, and um, yeah, yeah, and that's yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's 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 a good one. Um, so, 
Yeah, well, I, cool. I guess yeah, wholesome chunga sart man would be you know that, that <laughs> would be a good description. So, so um, you're coming to us from Canada. I understand. Mm. You know, you you frequently allude uh, somewhat uh, self-deprecatingly. I interpret to your Canadian identity, your residency in the first post-national nation. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I guess that leaves me wondering, are you Toronto based or without uh, doxing your. Oh, I'm, I'm fully doxed. So don't worry about it. I live a few, I live in a town near Niagara Falls. So not, not GTA, but uh, Niagara region. So. Uh So I, that leaves me wondering, like, uh, you know, as far as your engagement with, uh, you know, what I've described as like the distant right art scene, you know, this like large umbrella that any name seems uh, Mm. uh, inappropriate for, but um, is that for you something that's, over the computer do you view that as kind of a a something you do when you're on the computer or is there like an in real life component as well um very very little (laughs) irl component besides like selling my art online but i i i think one day maybe i'll branch out to um something more local i know like my my good friend uh matthew vistout who is an artist in london uh like in the UK, like he's starting to approach like creating an IRL scene. But the problem is that in Canada, it's hard to find. I mean, there are some people I know of in Toronto and in Montreal, but uh, there's always like, I'm always skeptical of doing IRL things just for virtue of the fact that I am a face and uh, Mm -hmm. I don't want to attract like uh, the attention of certain people, but I guess like a group of artists um would be different i mean if i could find the right people i'm obviously open to it um being being a leaf myself it's sort of like you're always going to live in the shadow of the group of seven so uh and and a lot of my artwork is inspired by that as well so yeah Mm -hmm. i mean definitely i'm open to the idea but very much my existence is um terminally online so (laughs) so and i don't associate for the record i don't associate with any uh any groups in real life in case uh, CSIS is uh, listening to us? So, you know, yeah. Um, no, I was just wondering because, uh, um, well, how do I put this? I don't know. I feel like there's like a, there's like a moment, like there's a, there's a push to kind of break through, right? To yeah. kind of break through to, um, yeah real life. And I think a lot of what we're contending with is the residue of uh, the fallout from Unite the Right. Not that I would have anything to do with those people uh, in particular, yeah. you know, uh, it, you know, of yeah, course, yeah. I disavow. But um, <laughs> we're liberal, but, uh, we're liberal, we disavow. Like, yeah. because, <laughs> because of the uh, political fallout from that, I feel like the main takeaway was never invite journalists, never speak to journalists, never show your face in public. And I see that a lot now. Um, with uh with regards to you know what i perceive as like the new york scene broadly a lot of people who are kind of old heads who may have been uh you know racist uh five years ago are very wary of like the the friendliness of certain aspects of the new york scene towards journalists and i feel like the lesson is somewhat misguided where um the culture has shifted so much and also like the people who represent like uh, uh dissident culture now are constitutively different in such a way that makes them harder to target um mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. i wonder how much like the the fear of reprisal for in real life organizing um not in any like direct like political sense but just in terms of cultural production is a, a misguided one i think it's it's misguided in the sense of um 
it depends what you have. Like it, it always is the, the wager of like what you have to lose. Right. Um, my -hmm. biggest fear is platform based, but in terms of like my own life, Mm -hmm. making the decision to like use my real name and face, it's because I consciously, you know, after I left grad school, um, I realized that being like going to a, a doctor program is like probably not going to be realistic, like in any sense, not even just politically. Uh, and things are mm-hmm. so fundamentally different now, not even just like the politics of it, but also like the sort of the intrinsic value of academia as well has been so fundamentally transformed. Uh, but, but also like when it comes to like the dimes, I, you're referring to the dime square scene. Uh, I, I think like, Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just don't like all of that because it's like, you know, people have like such a bitter taste in their mouth now. And I mean, also, like, yeah. I don't like that because uh, only in the aspect that I have the sense that Dime Square was kind of a thing in 2019 when it was like 40 people or so yeah. who would like go to Clandestino and Broken Canal. And that what we see now is kind of the aftermath of the aftermath where it's mm. like a, a about a thousand different clusters that kind of uh, only tangentially overlap with each other, but get kind of like roped into that umbrella, which is, you know, why, you know, to underscore the absurdity of it, why, you know, announced that like Dime Square no longer comprises Anna and Dasha, but rather Matt Forney and Richie, the Dominican incel. And uh, um, <laughs> it's yeah, just, like, it's yeah. like an it's one entity, but uh, sorry, I digress. No, no, it's true. It's true. No, it's, it's a good point. Um, being friends with at least certain people involved in it, I feel like there is, um, there's sort of a reactionary kitsch going on. Not sorry, reactionary, reactionary chic going on. Not there is reactionary kitsch. I will say we could get to that later. Um, but uh-huh. I, I feel like to look at things from the wake of, of Seville 2017 and then later, uh, J six, there are still certain mm-hmm. groups that if you do associate with, uh, the sort of network that may or, of activists that may or may not be funded by certain governments and certain NGOs, uh, Antifa, like the people like that go after them are insane. Like they have like literal GitHub. Um, they have like GitHub spreadsheets of like people that wore different shoes at Seville. And that's how they like used to dox people and so forth. So there are like still real world consequences to certain groups that have the sort of stain of Seville or J6 or whatever. But at the same time, uh, there is like a growing sense of people more willing to go out there. Like there's people like, for example, I know people that have survived doxes and who still have like semi-normie jobs and, uh, people that even come back from being a part of this group, like, uh, you know, certain people that I know, not to name names, but that have like largely come back and have sort of semi, I wouldn't say like mainstream GOP, but certainly like mainstream, like more to the right conservative positions. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, there, there's sort of definitely the problem, though, is when it comes to mass political activism, I do feel that those days are still uh, untenable, like and Seville demonstrated that, obviously, and that there will be sort well, of a a chilling effect when it comes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. It's the, the political activism doesn't interest me directly as much. No, um, no. I don't know. I mean, it, it feels trite to say, but I, I do kind of take as a premise that we're in a post-political moment. Mm. Um, but, you know, I think there's all this fear, but a lot of it was kind of like class and like uh, caste based where, uh, you know, Unite the Right was an easy target because it was comprised yeah. of, 
uh, of chuds, more or less. It was, yeah, the uh, chuds. I was gonna say, yeah, the chuds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, um, but you know the the so-called Times Square. You know, a lot of its proponents are Jewish trust fund kids. Like, and exactly, you know, they're not gonna yeah. they're not gonna get a hit piece in in you know, the Washington post because their uncle is like the editor of the Washington post, or, you know, <laughs> it's a small world. And so yeah. you figure that uh, a lot of like the kind of uh, liabilities that were initially uh, um, present in the previous era were, um, I think that a lot of those have more or less disappeared in that the, the dangers of um, complacency may, uh, may be greater than those of uh, whatever uh, yeah. psychotic, uh, um, dark juju you can unleash by uh by appearing in flesh and blood yeah exactly yeah there is a like there is a sort of um there's a sense where even like anons will attend these parties and people know who they are but they'll still like go by their anon name and they'll still like they'll be uh-huh. in the crowd you know and there's always like a danger of um of of mingling with like official people like from a dissident right perspective there is always like mm-hmm that's why damn square gets a lot of heat because like, as you mentioned, there is like an element of class and also identity that is, you know, I mean, let's face it, doesn't really jive with a lot, a lot of sectors of the dissident. Right. And I, you well, know, you characterized as, Oh, sorry. I didn't. No, no, you go ahead. Yeah. yeah you go ahead. You're good. What you've characterized as kind of like the reactionary chic is the thing that I feel, um, I think there's a lot of uh, justified skepticism of it and the natural mm-hmm. uh, um, inclination is to um, is that people will try to meme some kind of return to wokeness as like the next cultural moment. But wokeness is so self-evidently awful, so stifling and stale and terrible. I don't mm-hmm. think anyone actually wants that. I think one thing that's interesting, and there's like a million like uh, uh, Dime Square uh, uh think pieces obituaries even you know we're, <laughs> we're living in like the age of like post obituary uh ob- obituaries um but yeah it's true it's true every, almost all of them uh take as a premise um one which i think is far from self-evident but experientially true that um the right-wing turn of uh of the downtown manhattan art scene or you know whatever you may call it I really struggle for words that don't sound cringe. Yeah. Um, but sometimes but, you just got to um, embrace it. That, uh, <laughs> you know. the, the reactionary chic is inherently nihilistic. Um, mm. You know, that's mm. something that Crumplar has uh, um, written about and uh, somewhat extensively. That was something that underpinned uh, the Chapo Trap House's recent remarks about the Devere Ball. Um, oh, they talked about the Devere Ball? A, Oh yeah, they 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 allude to it in their uh, GQ interview. It was really funny. It was. Um, <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> was, um, I mean, they were just kind of riffing, but uh, yeah. they, they seem very amused by it. The thing that people don't understand about the Devere Ball, they would know if they listened to this podcast. But it, you know, that's like the passion project of my dear friend Phoebe, and it, it has you know for all the conspiracies about how it's like this Peter Thiel psyop to turn the downtown scene more elitist it really is just like this like jewish theater nerd who loves edward devere and has had this hobby horse and you know pestered all of our friends about it for uh for so long that you know she just needed an outlet to express this very earnest uh uh love of hers so 
<laughs> but uh, nonetheless, you know, they're going to interpret it however they may. But the premise underlying all of this is that, like, to be right wing is nihilistic in some sense, which should not be intuitive, right? Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in theory, like the ones who should have to answer for uh, the suggestion of nihilism should be those who would deconstruct all like uh, uh, traditional systems of meaning, like uh, hierarchies, whatever. And yet I think that that premise has resonance because there is something about it that that merely reads as fashion, that, uh, uh, you know, the proponents of any kind of uh, a right wing turn among among the dark elves, they must, uh, they're kind of empty vessels, they can never really embody like the, uh, the ancient wisdom that they uh, that they channel, you know, when Anna and Dasha talk about 1350, or how all women want to be raped, that's kind of they're channeling some deep primordial ancient wisdom. And yet, (laughs) and yet, I guess, people see that and they perceive it as nihilistic because there's there's an incompleteness about it there's transgression am i making sense oh definitely no i i feel like um having being being a dark hobbit myself coming from a working class background and going uh you know having uh two master's degrees uh it's Mm -hmm. you know uh that's something that Mulga, I always say this, Mulbug neglects the Dark Hobbit, okay? Like, Dark mm-hmm. dark Hobbit, like, me and Justin Murphy talked about this years ago, right? About being from, like, not an academic, like, <laughs> class-based background, you know? Um, but no, I think the nihilism, to answer your question, the nihilism is sort of the appropriation of right-wing thought that is put on as a fashion statement. And there's always, like, that sort of hermeneutics of, suspicion when it comes to the sincerity of those beliefs by virtue of being transgressive to a current cultural moment. But I think if you pull back from that, you could say that, like, I mean, wokeness is a terrible term. Obviously it's like, it's, it's cringe, right? It's, it's played out, but let's for, for, you know, for clarity's sake, let's say wokeness or uh, global progressivism or whatever, that that is not just, it's not just a cultural moment, but it's a culmination of the way in which, a certain iteration of Western civilization, or let's, you know, for clarity's sake, Western civilization has headed for the past hundred years or so, or even before that, depending on how reactionary you are. Um, I remember Carlsbad had this one saying uh, where he's like, some guy said that the snake in the Garden of Eden was ZOG. And he goes, that's the most right-wing man in existence, right? I I was thinking about that today. It was so funny, right? Like the snake in the garden with ZOG, and that is the most right-wing man. So, um, no, but I feel like the appropriation of it in terms of shocking current cultural sensibilities can invoke a nihilism, but also like the sort of, um, how shall I say it? I feel like there is a, a sort of narrative being formed by certain sectors of both academia and like political wonkery that the particular type of reactionary thought that per, in particular Anna likes, uh, Anna and Dasha, where it's sort of like, it's characterizing the, the let's call it the vitalist sector of the, the E-right as like Nietzsche nihilism and it's transgression. And it's very much like a battalion eroticism, ironically enough, where it's like the sort of the real trend, the real transgression is the sort of embracing of, uh, a more arcane form of like beauty and vitalism and, you know, right-wing bodybuilders and so forth that has been pigeonholed as nihilism, but I wouldn't call that nihilism. I would say that 
the I think like Anna in particular truly probably does admire a lot of thought that comes out of the dissident writer, the e-write, as I like to call it. But I feel like Certainly. the the overall like appropriation of it can come off as very much nihilistic in reaction to the particular thing. But I wouldn't say that though. I would say that a lot of the e-write, whether you're a trad cath or whether you're uh, a, a Nietzschean bodybuilder, whatever you want. Like, I, I think the Nietzschean thing's overplayed, obviously. I think that's just like a, a very easy thing for people like Adrian Vermeule and Sohab Amari, like those types, the post-liberals to be like, oh, you're nihilist because you're Nietzschean, blah, blah, blah. Like, I wouldn't say that. I would say that that's a much more sophisticated appreciation of more arcane values. I would say, you know what the real nihilism is? I'll tell you the real nihilism. Here's a hot take. The real nihilism is like Conservatard Inc. putting out their chocolate bar or like the Daily Wire films being like, you know, you have your girl boss, Mary Sue. Now we're going to have our girl boss, Mary Sue. It's like we're going to have our woke chocolate bar brand. Look at our base black gay. It's like that is real nihilism because it's basically just that. That's true reactionary thought, by the way. It's it's a reaction to the current like culture industry motif that then becomes a pastiche of itself. But because here's the thing, when you have the control of most cultural output, you don't really have to like concern yourself with being a, a pastiche of yourself, right? You don't have to concern yourself with authenticity so much as concerning yourself with um, the cultural politics of power, right? So by playing into that dialectic, people like the Daily Wire and like ben, Little Ben and like whoever did the, the right wing chocolate bar thing, uh, like <laughs> that is nihilistic because that is consenting not only to the conditions of the current cultural milieu and, and political milieu, but also it's like setting things up in such a way as to like shamelessly market to boomer conservatives that listen to Fox News, right? Anna Kachayan reading Bronze Age Mindset on the Red Scare podcast is I think like a degree less nihilistic than getting Gina Carano to play like badass warrior huntress, uh, Western, you know, spaghetti Western hero. <laughs> like, <laughs> so it's. No, like, I don't mean to yeah, yeah. Uh, any of that as nihilistic. I, I just say that because it is like a premise that's under that that underlies so much of the ink that's been spilled yeah. about yeah. what I think is like ultimately a relatively trivial. Uh, uh, downtown yeah. new york uh incident um but that that nihilistic premise seems like more or less unchallenged by both like critics and proponents mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. for the most part and i think that you're right i think that there is something uh very authentic about it uh i just um no i just find that interesting that there's a the, the equivocation between uh like right wing and um, and nihilism, because that's really counterintuitive. It really should be the opposite. Um, yeah, I, I think that there are some iterations of the right wing that are very like, um, I think figures like Bataille and Stirner are probably like apt because it is transgressing against a moral order. It's very like, even like Bap said, this is very Frankish. It's very like, um, it's very much against the, because when you're doing analyze like a lot of transgressive thinkers, it is very much like, uh, how shall I describe it? Transgression is a form of reactionary thinking in the sense of a certain moral order is built up. And when it comes to the subversion of that, or rather the groundwork of it, that 
the current political order has cordycepted on, like, you know, Christian civilization. Uh, like, I, I'm not totally convinced of the thesis that Christianity led to the current world progressive order, but you can like sort of see it there. Like there's certainly a validity to that. Although I think like people like Moldbug probably goes too far in it. But I do think well, that I think there's a, there, yeah, you can't ahead. conceive of like modernity as we know it sans Christianity, but true. But true. And yet, like true. the evolution that it's taken is, uh, um, you know, far from Christian in, in the pure sense. Yeah, exactly. Much as like, you yeah. can't have like a uh, Homo sapiens without like our like earliest like primate ancestors that look like rodents, and yet we're not <laughs> these like, rodents, like ferrets that uh, scurry about the the uh, the Cretaceous period. So yeah, yeah. Well, maybe some people are. So there's some cryptoids out there. They're 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 coming yeah. back. The cryptoids are coming back. So <laughs> yeah, I, I see a few of those on the timeline from time to time. But uh, um... <laughs> uh, no, I I think that um, there. If you, I was reading the Desaad book by Jonathan Bowden once, and he has a very similar thesis to Paglia about um, about Desaad, where the sort like especially with uh, you know 120 days of sodomy, how it's sort of very much like transgression with is within like an aristocratic impulse. Now, I'm I'm kind of like more convinced, ironically enough, by the Horkheimer Adorno um, thesis that like Desaad was basically like pure like capitalist exploitation power. Like there is something to it that the the human subject is rendered down into a series of holes to be exploited. So the E-right is a good, like, I think, um, battleground of these ideas. On the one hand is like very much the, let's call it, which I have sympathies for, but I think still have like uh, problems. Is like, like, for lack of a better term, like wholesome chungus, you know, um, it's all commodification. It's capitalist exploitation. It's like rendering the subject down into a series of holes. Then you also have the the more like vitalistic side, which is, you know, the the body and life itself is very. It's it's almost like a materialist metaphysics where the body becomes a work of art. It's something that transgresses the boundaries of like normal what you know yeast life. So there is like a, a lot of disparate parts within the e right that. Um, are always like constantly warring on the timeline, but do I think uh, have a salience when it comes to issues that have always been with us? There's always been uh -huh. sort of like, you know, Christian communitarian, wholesome chungus. I want to like have my homestead. Uh, I want to have a family, blah, blah, blah. But then there's also that other side of like the step warrior by necessity goes beyond the boundaries of the civilization he's a part of. Right. And it's like, I know a lot of this comes down to like online LARPing obviously, but I do think the fact that these philosophic issues are bandied about and they do embody, I would say heavy aesthetic comportment because it does come down to like the sort of dialectical image of the aesthetic of a particular form of politics. That I think is the most important thing in our particular instantiation of whatever we want to call it civilization because of the internet, because of various developments within um, the, the, let's call it like post Gutenberg galaxy, the image reigns supreme in terms of people's political thinking. Could you say that's a form of nihilism that an aesthetic converts you to like trad orthodoxy or being a right wing bodybuilder, or whatever, or being like an America first zoomer, like you could say that in at the heart of it, like it's like, oh, it's LARPing, it's nihilism. And I've said this as well. 
But really, what are the only alternatives, right? Like the alternatives are like consume things and, you know, so it's a lot of the sort of aesthetic politics that we're living under, they come about for a reason, right? They, 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 I, I truly believe this. I believe that even if something is constructed or something is a LARP or something is merely an aesthetic, it has an existence. Like what Young said, right? A fantasy is a fact. An aesthetic is a fact. A, a politics is a fact in the sense that people believe in it, right? So, well, maybe not so. I mean, there are people that are, you know, shameless grifters and LARPers that just take on the the affectation of something. But by and large, a lot of people, there is something to be said that the image has always converted people to a particular way of living, to a particular, like the image itself has an ontology to it, in other words. Mm-hmm. And I like being a Catholic, right? Like a cradle Catholic. I mean, it would behoove me not to mention that, that really like the image, right? The, the, the work of art has a sort of ontology and a spiritual, uh, a theopolitics, if you will. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, Orthodox, the, the yeah. like kind of, uh, uh, it entails a worldview or it like, uh, it, it reflects the worldview that produces it. I don't yeah. consider that nihilistic at all. I mean, at most you could say that that's shallow, but like the ubiquity of, uh, uh, stupid infighting on the timeline or whatever if anything that should be a credit against nihilism because it's like right. if you have like the courage of your convictions to be pedantic about like the minutiae <laughs> of your worldview you clearly believe in something um yeah you know i think that as far i mean i've been a big proponent of larping i think that larping is basically just like bettering your lot in a lot of ways mm. um and yeah uh, yeah, I've uh, in, on this podcast before. I've invoked the example of like Don Quixote, who I think is like kind of mm-hmm. emerges as like a truly heroic figure in like in a postmodern sense uh, uh, throughout the novel. Um, oh yeah, and definitely. that's kind of like what we're trying to achieve, right? By power of mimetic mutation to like uh, create new realities, um, to expand the scope of what's possible, and to like refashion old forms into like uh, transgressive opportunities. Um, but, you know, at most, like you could say that like a lot of those things, uh, the LARP culture is like shallow or that. And I think I guess that is kind of what I'm saying in effect. But um, Mm -hmm. but I mean, you have to start somewhere. And at the same time, a lot of like the the kind of this critique seems to impose an impossible standard right if the idea is like none of us are truly based, we're all libtards because why (laughs) I mean, like what we don't like. Like, yeah, okay, we're not like step warriors, but... We all eat the sloth. We all eat that certain sloth. We haven't been step warriors. It's like, I don't know, like you can practice Catholicism very plainly and very straightforwardly without any aspect of affectation. Maybe you won't have like a pre-modern, like kind of uh, emotional sensibility about it, but, Mm -hmm. you know, you can go through the motions in a very like... uh, um, uh, and, And you can truly believe in a very sincere way. And so it's like the, the suggestion that this is merely a LARP seems, uh, I don't know, it, it seems to foreclose on like anything actually like meaningful or worthwhile. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you could say that about just about anything. It, it seems to impose a standard that like, because you live in modernity, because you are a consumer in some sense, that none of your gestures at a, a more meaningful um, uh, paradigm are, uh, are authentic. Like, mm-hmm. and I don't think, I really don't think that the times we're living in are all that salient that there's simply like no, um, 
no meaningful retreat from modernity. No, yeah, that's I have a lot of thoughts about that. Um, now that like like your train of thinking, I feel like there there is like something to be said about um the way that it's framed, like LARPing. Because I feel like the the reason that a lot of like people in the E-right feel this is and we always debate over it, is because we don't have the ontological security that uh, a lot of people in the political left, like mo like most people in the political left, do, where essentially there is like their worldview is consented to at the highest of levels, and the culture industry really reflects it. And like even the book I'm writing right now about neoliberal kitsch is about the sort of like how a particular image uh, or a particular kitsch pastiche territorializes someone's life and politics. Uh, and so a lot of right wingers will have this moment where it's like, oh, we're just LARPing because we're not doing anything. Like the, the good example recently would be, um, I said this on my, I was recording yesterday in my podcast. I think it was with, uh, yeah, it was with Josh LeCatch. We were talking about this, uh, you, you know that, who's the guy in Virginia? The guy that won on the, the critical race theory stuff. Oh, Youngkins. Youngkin. Yeah, yeah, Blumkin. Yeah, yeah. See, the the Chapel Ironists, if they really wanted to win, they could have called him Glenn Blumkins. That could have been like total irony. I think they, they called him a Glenn Otherkin, which. Oh, it's yeah, even better. Even better. You know, um, I, I tip my hat. I, I give credit where it's due. That was a good one. Uh, there was that one garbage ape tweet that I quite liked the other day, even though he blocked me uh, finally. Where it was like it was a it was net, it was typical irony style because even though I I'm quite a fan of the early Simpsons as well where it's like Ned Flanders in the in the bell tower he's like that's woke that's woke <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know even when he's on he's on you know uh, uh -huh. but but anyways uh, what was I saying okay the, the the thing the other day about Glenn Youngkins where it was some like F two M person and it was like he couldn't he couldn't muster the courage to be like no you're I, you will never be a man right like it's like if you have a politics that is transgressing against like whatever like the the typical like you know conservative like these are woke tarted people blah 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 it's like not to not even have the courage like that was a such a that was such an l because it's like the sort of uh a lot of like the edginess that comes out of like transgressing against current you know current like woke politics to not like back it up when you do like if he would have said i truly believe this if he would have said like no actually you're a man you're a woman and you wouldn't be in a i'm not gonna let you in the bathroom his voters would have voted for him again but i think glenn youngkin's political career is uh, not long for this world uh so well i mean the, the, the proponents yeah. of uh what's been called wokeness i mean i think they're like sharks to like blood and water you know yeah that yeah, um 100%. they really uh they smell weakness from a mile away and they'll seize yeah. upon that but if you if you put up the front like you don't back down they don't they don't uh attack you as much i've yeah. noticed this in my life like um you know i think uh i think that a lot of men suffer under uh nebulous hashtag me too allegations mm -hmm. um maybe not like famous men just so much as like in like a college scenario or whatever um where they face the problem that the mentality that it puts you in to face the threat of such an allegation is the exact most counterproductive mentality to kind yeah. of uh, uh to approach it because it, because you're cowering you're weak you want to apologize but of course to apologize means to admit guilt exactly. whereas you know to stand your ground and to be firm is a very powerful thing uh, sorry, but uh, I didn't, it didn't uh, mean to cut you off totally. No, no, but that's a good point, though. That's a great point because, like, they'll they'll never, like, 
unless you're doing like IRL activism, they will go after you, right? But as we, as we were discussing, but if you're like explicitly on the right, I noticed like having a lot of friends in the, you know, post left thing, they like really went hard after them for a reason because they were like, they were, they're apocryphals. People like Amy Therese is an apocryphal, right? So that's when they do really go after you. But to lead in your point, you were saying before about LARPing is that, okay, so the existential security thing, um, but also I, I feel like the, the, the sort of hyper real moment that we're living in facilitates this, like, like, okay, I'll give you an example. Like, you know how like Mark Fisher, he talks about it in his, I believe it was a lecture that went into one of his books before he unfortunately passed where it was uh, the slow cancellation of the future where he's like, you know, Oh, well, you know, everything can come back and it's all a postmodern prestige. It's very much like Frederick Jameson's book on postmodernism, right? That's what he was reiterating. But instead of like lamenting it, right? If, if I think the true heroic, the, the true heroic like Nietzschean position would be to say, yeah, everything can come back in post-modernity. Everything can't like you can be a Bronze Age step warrior. You can be like Y2K aesthetic 90s kid forever. You can, like, you know what I mean? So I think like the reason that a lot of people like Mark Fisher and Frederick Jameson, who are wedded to a particular like, you know, what happened to the possibility of Marxist activism, they lament it by, you know, post-modernity crushing their thing. Or serious, like serious hat politics, right? Mm -hmm. And I think like Mark Fisher later on, he did realize the possibility of it with like acid communism and all that. But he's still like near the end, he still pulled back. He's like, no, what about a sincere modernist Marxist politics, right? It's like, well, I hate to say it, but that's a lot of those days have passed us. And I think like a lot of sincere um, conservative politics in the States have also passed us. And I think that's why people are more fascinated with like these various antipods in the online world that can sort of uh, admit to the fact that yes, we are postmodern driftwood. Yes, all of those cultural pastiches, they can come back, but there's also a power in that because now that you, know, you can sort of um, have this perspectival proliferation of different modes of identity and, and politics. And I think like when it comes to the ontological security of being someone who is a part of the predominant prevailing ideology, um, that lack of ontological security can provoke a lot of creativity. It can provoke like in sort of like a siege mentality, even it can provoke uh, a sort of um, a, a quest for something that is more right. That is creative. That is artistic. And, and that being said, like, mm -hmm. I, I realized the, the, the goal and the desire to have that political ontological security, to have that groundedness to say that, you know, actually, um, and I think Trump was really, Trumpism was that sort of quest, right? Is to, to, to arrive back at a world in which the political right can have some form of stability. But in the absence of that, a lot of my work has been about um, realizing the creative potentials and lacking that stability in being a true uh, outsider. But I would say though, there is dangers in fetishizing the outside because then you become this sort of like, uh, the reactionary lark can become something that, uh, how should I put it? I, I, have, I have a very on the fence, complicated relationship to sincerity and LARP, right? Because I think that some people like- Me too. 
Yeah, like you can like learn. okay, like like a, a yeah, latex like, or like plastic like Nazi uniform. Like yeah, like you'll yeah. never be a real Hitler. You you know no, you're kind of like, you'll never be an SS stormtrooper that takes Parvatin and like goes to yeah. Ukrainian village, right? Like, not yeah, gonna it's happen. like because like you want to like uh, appropriate the symbols, but of yeah. course like you're not you know. Maybe actually, if you go and you join PMC Wagner, maybe you can do that. But maybe, <laughs> but most people yeah, there are ways to like make it not a LARP though right it's yeah. like you know yeah. whatever it may be it doesn't have to be a national socialism per se you know you could, no uh, no it could uh, be anything you could LAR like make the larp real with much more benign things but like whatever it is under the sun i mean there are like certain possibilities that are foreclosed to you i don't think that we can be hunter gatherers mm. i mean maybe but maybe you know if you're a hunter gatherer you're not posting about it so you're kind of right, uh, right. out of the conversation at that point you know, but, I, I but think there I mean, are opportunities for sincerely more primitivist uh, ways of living, but at the same time, they've kind of uh, uh, left the the culture at that point. It's more no, exactly. Um, but the um, well, one last thought. One last thought about that. What I mean yeah. is, um, I I feel like I, I I'm definitely on the side of like sincerity. Like I definitely do have a lot of wholesome chungus uh, tendencies, but I think that certain people when they have an identity in a style of posting, what happens is it starts off as a LARP. It starts off as like, I'm being bombastic, but then mm -hmm. it become, but then you become, as I say, in pro professional wrestling, you become a mark for yourself, right? Like you, you start to believe in your own, um, your own ability to like offend people or post or whatever. And I feel like, like my sensibility is I'm very kind of like, I'm very skittish when it comes to people who have a very overt, like serious hat, almost like cult like personality where it's like, you're either with me or against me. I, mm -hmm. I notice like I have a very, I have like a subtle aversion to that because I don't particularly, there are some things I do take very seriously. Like when it comes to my own ability to produce content, but when it comes to like my personal visage, uh, I don't have a <laughs> I don't have a tendency to like take myself that seriously to the point where um, I'll like constantly start wars with people and especially no, being I a very, we're on a very similar wavelength in that like yeah. I do have like very strong principles and strong opinions. I mean, yeah, me you know, too. It, you know, talking about like if you if I were to talk about epistemology, I'd be like the the like crazy, like logo daedalus waking out about how empiricism ruined everything. But, you know, uh, aside from like these like niche gripes, I'm really not that interested in like kind of like yeah. uh, positioning myself within like the more uh, immediately relevant ideological battles of the day. You know, yeah. I like to be a kind of big tent uh, 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 platform, you know, and uh, um, and I really do recoil against people like trying to police my associations. You know, it makes me want oh, to yeah, me too. associate more with uh, the target of uh, of that policing out of spite. So yeah, I've dealt um, with all these issues for many years now. You know, like mm -hmm. it's like even like I'll, I'll I wanted to talk a little bit though before we move on about the to not go trail off the thought about Dime Square. And listen, I say like I'm not like I'm not attacking him. I, I kind of, I kind of like reading him. I think he is a good writer. Okay, but you know Crumpler, right? Crumps. Um, yeah, I'm familiar, and I agree. Yeah, I mean, I, I, so listen. If he's listening to this, if he's hate listening to your podcast, I'm not offending him. But there was one criticism I felt was apt, which is that he realizes that he's trying to cancel the scene, 
but he's integral as a part of that scene. And I feel like the Red Scare universe in some ways manufactured that in the sense of when he's embedded, like he's invited to the parties, right? And people know that, like, don't talk to this guy because he's like, you know, a leftoid, whatever. And they like called him a tranny chaser or whatever. But at the same time, he's within the scene. He's doing a gonzo, like new journalism. He's like the Tom Wolf of the E-Right. So he's in the scene trying to critique the scene, but he knows in sort of like a wink, wink, not in a postmodern way, he knows that he's not tolerated by the people that he wants to be with, like, which is professional journalist leftism because he's a part of this thing, but yet he's critiquing it from almost from the inside. And it's like, this weird, like he's going through the motions of it. I think he more or less says a a variation of the same thing himself. Yeah. You know, I think that he is a good writer. I think that, uh, um, that's brilliant. I think it's the nail right on the head, you know, um, like when he's describing, uh, uh, Yarvin's uh, Battery Park party in the, uh, in the post right before the humiliation ritual, actually, that was, uh, um, (laughs) I, I think that even Curtis himself would admit that that, uh, that uh, Substack post was right on the money. Um, yeah. And no, I mean, I, I, you know, I wasn't there for the Dime Square humiliation ritual. Thank God. I, you know, it sounds like I, I, I kind of came away from it just thinking like, I'm nothing like these people, even though I may <laughs> have like, but I totally believe that it happened exactly as he said it did, you know. Yeah, probably. Um, because... I don't know. And it's because it's frankly like uh, the individuals involved are Jewish trust fund kids who were red pilled about all of six months ago. And, uh, you know, when confronted with the allegation that they're fascist or racist, like they can't kind of own up to it. They show that same weakness, you know. And so there's like this uh, 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 fear of confrontation that I think uh, uh, characterizes that exchange. Whereas, you know, if you had a true hardened fascist, they would just say, well, define fascist. And then, okay, by your definition, everyone in history from like Catherine the Great to Akhenaten would be constituted as a fascist. So, you you know, there's very easy answers if you're like, uh, if you have the courage of your convictions. But I I think that's where the nihilism aspect kind of uh, enters into the picture. Yeah, I don't, that's, I, that is true. I don't think that uh, uh, Crumps is uh, listening to this podcast, although we've talked a little bit about uh, it, having him on. But I, I, I mused upon the idea, but then my fear would be he would like immediately attack you after you know you go on. What it's worth, I, I will uh, defend him a little bit. I mean, yeah. aside from his very like self-serving like moral negotiations that he details and uh, excruciatingly in every post where he's mm. talking about you know how can he stay righteous while still engaging with this thing. Um, and aside from his bizarre like libtard tirades about like the uh, equality of all people and human liberation, um, the jeunesseance yeah, of racism, which is a great article, in my opinion, I unironically oh, yeah, racist jeunesseance. I mean, I think that he kind of is like getting at something real with that. It's just his value judgment that uh, that's misguided. But, yeah, um, but, I think know, he needs to go down the route of Sam Chris. He needs to be canceled. <laughs> to commit any like flagrant violation of journalistic ethics. You know, he's very upfront no. about who he is. He's like, he all but says, I'm like a libtard and I'm here to make you look bad. And he honestly doesn't even make people look that bad uh, aside from like uh, a few extreme cases. But um, yeah, but a lot of the times he makes people look cool and interesting and transgressive and, uh, um, and 
Uh, and moreover, like he, he, he hasn't, you know, he keeps things off the record when, uh, when they're understood to be off the record, you know, he'll yeah. certainly tell unflattering details about things, but, uh, um, he had the opportunity to dox a, a friend of mine and, uh, seems to have passed it up. Uh, so I don't know. I, yeah. I think that, uh, he is more or less a straight shooter. He is unabashedly the awful thing that he is. So <laughs> it would be a very interesting conversation, of course. You yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I've talked to him a little bit uh, and uh, he seems more or less benign. Yeah. He's not like, I mean, a lot of people, I feel like there is always like a paranoid suspicion, especially after 2017 in the you right. So I understand it. But um, even like people give me shit for like, being friends with Catherine, you know, like that's always a perennial issue I've faced. Um, but you know, uh, not to mention too much, but, um, mm -hmm. it is what it is. Like, I think Crumpler would be a very interesting conversation. I feel like he needs to, like I was saying, he needs to go through like a Sam Chris moment where he's like canceled for something absolutely ridiculous. And I've always admired Sam Chris. I think Sam Chris was always a brilliant writer in my opinion. Me too. Though, I mean, he's also yeah. like a libtard, but like, I think that he is a, better writer than crumbs frankly i know that oh, there's yeah. a little bit of contention between the two of them i thought that his uh uh <laughs> sam chris's uh uh dime square article should have killed the genre it was like uh so funny to me um <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I you know I, yeah, I, it, man, yeah on the off chance that he's listening you know i would love to have him on as well i know you've said more or less the same thing because we both mistook sam chris owl for the actual entity but yeah, yeah, the DM, yeah, the group chat, yeah. Oh man, I'd love to talk to Sam Chris, man. That'd be a, that'd be amazing. Um, I don't know if he's, I mean, Sam he's Chris, like, uh, you know, he suffers from a lot of the same issues where he, um, uh, I, I think he has a, a tendency for moral grandstanding about like yeah. the evils of hunger and like these obvious platitudes, um, and also, uh, he will do these little like continental philosophy tricks where for example his writing about um Elaine de Baton did you read that article I think I read that one that's like an yeah. older one but he's basically saying like he makes this oh that was from, one like, of my favorite article oh the Elaine de Baton yeah that was yeah. one of my favorite I love that article because he shredded that guy is I, I love that one too. And I read it and I thought it was funny, but at the same time he's making this leap and people love to do this. Like Adorno does this too, where, yeah. you know, he identifies him as like a trite middle brow philosopher. And then just, hammers just like him. the Holocaust. And then, you know, there's like, the, <laughs> right. It's just like, the, yeah, the trite middle brow philosopher who stands at the gas chamber, pulling the lever as he incinerates countless <laughs> Jews. Like, you know what I mean? It, it, the, the, it seems like very glib and kind of a, a, a. I don't think it stands up to scrutiny that like Alain de Baton, because he has like this lazy philosophy, because he's a, um, you know, indulges in platitudes that are feel good but not philosophically rigorous, is somehow in any way connected to uh, the worst atrocities of the 20th century or any century for that matter. I, so I, I, I think that premise is like kind of like yeah. a, a, one of. Chris's weaker points, but all this is a lot, you know, this is a lot of words to say that I actually do really like him. Um, no, I think like, know, I his... think that he can be incredibly clever and shine a light on things and oh, like, yeah. oh, make yeah. connections in ways that are the mark of like a true, truly great essayist. So, oh yeah. But, but he has stop gaps. Like you were saying like that prevent, like, I think the argument would be that um, the way that someone like Alain de Bodden approaches um, 
philosophy and and deep wisdom is that basically it's just like the product of instrumental reason and you could like have this through line like even heidegger said this like really there's this like through line between the wheat thresher and the gas chambers right so i feel like that's probably what you know he Wait, Sam what was the gas chambers a, a wheat thresher and the gas chambers okay yeah like that's right. all a product of like instrumental reason and in framing of life in other mm -hmm. words and so sam chris would say that by approaching mm -hmm. these things in such an instrumental and utilitarian way that that would be like i'm not defending it of course because i think that that's a it is a bullshit argument like um bullshit in the sense of like it's bombastic but he would say that by stripping these deep sources of human meaning and wisdom into very like tidbit utilitarian improve your life type of stuff yeah and making it into a grift that that is the same logic that led to the camps <laughs> it's like you know oh, yeah I mean, and i have like yeah, a, you yeah. know i have a big chip on my shoulder about uh uh people suspending the principle of sufficient reason or these kind of this kind mm. of virtue ethics that just like doesn't actually interrogate like what the good constitutes even like the good in terms of like how you live your life and uh yeah. you know that just kind of relies on like vague emotivism uh as a cop-out yeah. for uh delivering any like a priori reason to uh believe in like uh, a true good and evil and, right. and you know I get, I, I get very autistic and like rigorous about about uh about this because i would not take for granted at all that suffering is inherently bad or that pleasure is inherently good you know right, uh, um, right. i think that yeah. they're more or less like morally arbitrary and that like I, I really would reject any attempt to kind of uh, uh tepidly like it just uh, uh, suggests that suffering is bad without any sufficient reason for it. So, no, true. That's very true. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's like that kind of true. like a, a, a vulgar pragmatism uh, you might characterize uh, Bhutan as. So I agree with that. I think that maybe the strong, the, uh, the steel man version of that argument is that, you know, the, the intellectual uh, laziness and lack of curiosity uh constitutes some kind of complacency towards uh the greatest evils that humanity is capable of yeah that's true yeah um plus like you know what really sealed it for me was um his description of elaine de Bodden having sex that was that was like <laughs> well that's also really, what's like, interesting because the best emotion. parts are also the best parts of that article are also the meanest and kind of yeah the most morally uh 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 sketchy right because you know you're saying he's a bad philosopher and then there's just like these these absurd like beautifully written like brilliant like uh, uh eviscerating ad hominem attacks about how bizarre looking he is mm. and on some level i feel like that's kind of like the the gas chambers like that's like <laughs> the, the cruelty manifesting right like you've had like you have an appropriate yeah. target and you have to like uh go for the jugular uh, it, you know, I think that that's much closer to the instinct behind the gas chambers than, uh, you know, having like a retarded philosophy where you say like, oh, well, because everyone loves pleasure, we must live our lives to be happy and we must solve the mind body problem of when we don't feel comfortable in our bodies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it, well, it's like people saying that the Covidian era was like... Um was like fascism or something or nazi it was, no it's like it was terminal liberalism that's like me and jeffrey schulenberger talked about this like it's really just liberalism manifest in in a biosecurity um state of exception really i mean that's you can't like people like to make like i hate like conservative 
because there are people like the truckers they did do this thing where it's like you know it's just like nazi germany it's like no it's it's a very different manifestation of the way in which like global liberal society was heading anyways right so but those vicious descriptions of elaine de bonnet i feel you could make that argument of like you know a sort of like a, a Dasadian critique of someone's like vicious physiognomy that that is more akin to like the transgression of like, like the way he described Elaine de Bodden as like almost like a, a scientist, like they're, they're, um, they're totally immune to passions and to, you know, Oedipal drives. And it's like, he's frustrated, he's flustered and like all, like all the poetic description of Elaine de Bodden, like finally orgasming. And he doesn't know what to do with that because he doesn't, he can't fit that information in his like scientific worldview. It's like, that was great. But, but at the same time, I think Chris is aware that the transgressive force of the primordial could also lead to like extreme vitalistic fascism, which I think like he wouldn't even, he would probably agree with. Right. So it's like that primordial force is a very, you know, the chthonic can create, um, the greatest works of art, but could also create the gas chambers. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, but I think like I, I would disagree in the sense of like I know that a lot of like writers in the 20th century they would say that like fascism and Nazism that it didn't have an ideology that it was basically like emotivism that it didn't like really have a worldview is just like it was you know like Umberto Eco's oh, fascism. Glib. I mean, everyone wants to yeah. say that about their adversaries. Yeah, exactly. We say that about the, them all the time. We say that really they worship ugliness and that they're really bug men. And, you know, we do that all the time. So it's, <laughs> I mean, it's weird because like they are religionists. I guess like uh, the foundations of it are very nebulous. And in theory, yeah. it's actually much more nihilistic than it is in practice because, um, right. Because like they, you know, practice like uh, uh, policing gender pronouns as like a sacrament. Yeah. Yeah. And yet in theory, like the purpose of the gender pronoun is to like destabilize any kind of normative sense of value that can be derived from your sex. So. Yeah, exactly. Like, no, but like I, I've read, I've read quite a bit of um, leftist theory and I do intellectually, I do entertain that possibility of like, like sort of the liquefaction of identity and, and gender in person that that is sort of like um, creating like a condition of a post-humanity, like a, a post-humanism. But at the same time, I mean, I disagree with it, obviously, because, you know, I mean, come on, I'm on the political right, uh, you know, and it is subversive through and through. But at the same time, um, there is sort of like an original picture of what these academics were talking about. Uh, you know, I know people like they like to bomb on like Judith Butler, right? And like a lot of Judith Butler's, her, her best insights come from Michelle Foucault. Uh, and, and that was actually told to me by a critical theory professor who herself was a scholar of Judith Butler. So, um, but at the same time, I do think that the vulgarization of like leftist theory leads to another form of like molar identity to where you're destabilizing society, but you're ushering in another ideological picture that is just as like totalizing as the one that you're claiming to like overthrow. But that being said, I know that's a classic, like, you know, right-wing talking point, but it is a validity to it. But I would say that, um, and I know like the, the irony bros, like the irony, like the Chapo people, they make fun of this about like wokeness being a religion. They're kind of correct in the sense that I don't think it's a religion per se is it's like an occultic force that um, mm -hmm. has a mark, has the demarcations of religious faith, but lacks a lot of the like subtlety of it. 
and it's something different. It's a secularization of a lot of religious. I don't know. I I feel like it's like become a very like unfashionable or trite talking point. But I think yeah. that the characterization of progressivism as a religion is more or less on the money. Um, yeah. Just. Well. I mean, I, 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 uh, uh, I'm, I've been very influenced by uh, Vermeule's uh, uh, "All Human Conflict is Ultimately Theological," which yeah. you know I know he's also an unfashionable figure uh, for unrelated reasons. You know, most <laughs> his opposition to nativism and his bizarre yeah. uh, kind of like online antics. But um, I think that no one really described like the the sacraments and like the liturgy of progressivism as well as him. And I really see no reason, like. I guess what you're saying is that it's unworthy to be characterized as a religion. But I would yeah. just counter that like a kind of you know broadly like you can just have like a perverse and like uh, uh ugly religion with like evil premises that nonetheless uh, uh still maintains like the the aspects of like sacramentality and like dogma and theology um and, and like do double articulate like what what did uh what did gerard called it um the the double pull of the mimetic chain right like you mm -hmm. You observe someone else; they're observing you. And it's like, yeah, the mimesis is still there, right? So, um, mm -hmm. but I, I, at the same time, like there, there are people like that is another big shelling point in the E right is like, is everything ultimately theological or is everything ultimately racial, right? Or maybe, maybe both, right? Like you never know. Uh, mm -hmm. That's that's another huge debate, right? Like, I mean, there are like, I feel like a lot of people do like use religion to like deny the realities of race, but at the same time, mm -hmm. like. There are people that are of like the more like race realist side who, uh, you know, we've been debating this for decades now, right? Like literally yeah. decades. So, yeah. I don't know. I mean, like I find like uh, uh, like racialism, like very interesting, right? I yeah. want to do a podcast later about uh, uh, the cosmic race by Vasconcelos. Ooh, um, interesting. But interesting. I just feel like the, the uh, like regardless of its immediate relevance, like uh, uh, race is a very contingent fact and I'm like a rationalist. So I'm more interested in like higher order truths about epistemology and, uh, uh, you know, ways of uh, uh, perceiving reality. Mm. So I guess I would be more, more or less spiritual about that. You know, mm. I mean, I, I think that that only runs into problems when, uh, when the, the spiritual uh, foundation is, uh, is used as a reason for open borders because, uh, because yeah, the immigrants exactly. are Catholic. But uh, yeah. I don't know. I find it very hard uh, to argue with philosophical precision from race, which appears to be a contingent empirical reality to uh, uh, upwards towards like a cohesive worldview. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, Adrian Vermeule, I mean, he's the object of ire uh, for a variety of reasons. I mean, that that's sort of like Guadalupe, like integralism where it's like the, you know, well, because they're Catholic, then therefore um, it's, it's all right. Like, I, I think that to me, I landed the position of it's both. I think that a civilization's faith, but also civilizations like biological and cultural and ethnic identity are very important. I feel like the war over the two is sort of like missing the point. I know like, for example, BAP would say that religion has never been a good like marker of identity that like, for example, in medieval Christendom, people more or less knew what a European was like, and it's true. Like I have much more in common. Well, maybe not with a Finnish person. I mean, that's pretty far, but eh, that's it. for a sake of argument. I have more in common with a Finnish person as an Italian uh, living in Canada than, you know, like, it, but at the same time, I mean, you can't like, mm -hmm. I feel like, when people get into wars with other people in a particular ideological faction, then you tend to like reify your own position to like attack. Like I know what BAP, like, like not to cast shade, but like, for example, 
when a lot of like Catholics downplay race, it's because, oh, I hate those, you know, vitalist bodybuilders. Uh, I'm going to up, like, I'm going to like really play up race because I feel like the cringe, like, you know, communitarian Catholic wholesome chungus people that they're like a bane on like a truly explicit reactionary project. It's like, so, uh, you know, I feel like a lot of people lack nuance in this regard. I I, I always thought that was funny when uh, uh, Vermeule would like go after the Nietzschean bodybuilders. uh, (laughs) They're Gnostics. What about like uh, uh, upselling your adversaries? You know, if you want to like, he could have said like, like uh, philosophical pagans, which I guess sounds kind of cool too, like just uh, aesthetically, but like, Oh man, I'm so Sounds mad like a black at these metal band. bodybuilders. These guys who are obsessed with all their power and who are, who claim all power and they're fit and handsome and <laughs> um, <laughs> they're not a Harvard professor material, you know. Yeah, Adrian, please come on the pod. Yeah. I, I I would love to talk to him, uh, despite uh, oh, yeah. despite all of his. Uh, Despite all that he's been through, all the controversies around him, he is always a there's always a seat open for him on the beautiful toilet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but 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 you wanted to move on to some to another topic, or yeah, I guess uh, I, I wanted to circle back a little bit uh, yeah, uh, sure. as far as like uh, you know what we've described as like scene politics and kind of like the evolution of the culture. Um, Phoebe and I have talked about this a lot recently, and I feel like the. Uh, what we're accustomed to is honestly like very uh outmoded mm. i mean first like you know this is something that i think that uh in different words from fisher but along the lines that he alludes to like it feels very difficult to uh, um isolate threads or to like isolate trends because it's all noise we're living yeah. in the constant like uh neo woke but at the same time like deep into like 4chan racism and misogyny hmm. uh, uh 60s 70s 80s 90s y2k revival with uh, uh you know wholesome but edgy like it, it, what what is what's the fashion now everything all at once and nothing because you know because <laughs> it's everywhere and, and everything yeah exactly um, you know i feel like the, the the center cannot hold like uh uh you know, even like the reigning uh, figures and uh, uh, motifs and uh, of heterodoxy are kind of outmoded at this point. And yet there's like a vacuum uh, uh, or there w- would be a vacuum if they were to be displaced as like a center of gravity. Uh, I, I think that we're all kind of struggling for, uh, you know, a, a direction now, you know, what the to be able to figure out the future amidst all this noise, you know, oh, to seize upon something and to have like the the confidence in it to claim the mandate of heaven and to have like the the work and the culture and like the dynamism to um to believe in it yeah i was uh in el salvador fairly recently and uh, mm-hmm. aside from like the politics of it like i feel like there's like a real feeling of cultural renewal that like right. the current like you know we're living in the salvadoran century and like people are just like mm-hmm. excited because there's like a sense of uh direction and dynamism you know how do we get that how do like how do we move forward from like just like doing endless podcasts where we talk to the same 40 people about uh <laughs> about how wokeness is bad and yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know like niche yeah. little uh uh intra right wing disputes like what's the what's the way out from here 
Oh, that's such a oh, god. That's such a big question. Um, certainly, El Salvador is a good demonstration of what the way out is of having like someone who is sophisticated enough to be a crypto bro. Although I don't know, maybe yeah, the is? bank scandal. Oh, but, El Salvador, yeah. Yeah, in El Salvador. Sorry, El Salvador. Um, like, uh, what's his name? Oh, I can never pronounce his Bukele. last name. Bukele. Yeah, Bukele. Bukele. Yeah. Like someone who's sophisticated, although I would say the Silicon Valley thing, I mean, apparently when the markets open up on Monday, they're going to take a huge L. So uh, <laughs> we'll see about that. Oh, yeah. But, I haven't really been following that. Yeah. But, me uh, neither. I have friends who are into that. Like, uh, but maybe Silicon Valley needs a good kick in the teeth. Who knows? Uh, but no, but I feel like someone who is sophisticated, but also someone who, if you like analyze the speeches, very much talks about the revival of tradition and aesthetics and, and uh, freeing a civilization, like freeing a country and a people from the bane of like a problem that really is kind of like you could link to like globalization and, you know, the global drug trade and, you know, basically um, the, like the, as, as America becomes more third worldized, the third world also becomes more Americanized. Right. So mm -hmm. I feel like that is a template, but in terms of like what we're doing, the the it all goes back i feel to 2016 because that was the promise of the sort of hyper reality constructing an apparatus where eventually by posting these ideas would percolate to the top and they would become transcendent and they would go into meat space now that dream has been frustrated along the way but i still think that there are instances where as reality sort of decouples from most people, like this is what my article at the beginning of the year about 2022 was all about, right? Like as reality becomes more decoupled from the norms of whatever particular iteration of like post-history liberalism, whatever, like we're going to, you know, live in stasis forever. As people become like more collectively insane or there's sort of like a hypermania going on because of like being terminally online or whatever, uh, and it seems that since the Covidian era, people refuse to go back to like touching grass. Things will become different. Things will, by definition, have to percolate to quote unquote meat space or whatever. Um, even if it's like the most insane, crazy, performative ways. Like, for example, I saw the other day, some guy was in like, a tr like he was being pursued by the police. It was like some kind of chase. And he was like screaming out. Um, like go to schizo poster NFT and like the news reader was reading threads about the CIA and, and MK ultra. It's like stuff like that is like truly like performance to like, like using reality as a performance piece. That type of stuff is going to become more common. I predict in the future, mm -hmm. unless the regime has a way of like locking down all of this, like, you know, crazy energy. Um, I think things are going to get, as things get worse, things will become more uh, interesting, put it that way. I feel like, it, that, and that's always happened throughout human history, as things get worse, things enter into a sort of like liminal space where, and I know it's like a, a buzz term, right? But things enter a sort of liminality where there's all sorts of possibilities. The beginning of COVID was kind of like that as well. There was a few, the, the month, the very first month, it was like- Oh, I remember. Yeah, like we could go in any direction, really. I mean, we went to a, went to a very fake and gay direction, but like you know, I mean, it was, no, but it know. felt like for the first time, like we were living in happening times, you know. Exactly. Yeah. The first yeah, time exactly. in my life, I would, you know, I had this feeling throughout like the late 2010s that like 
it, things were all together like pretty nice um yeah but, you know in, in the most unsustainable way and that uh you know we were actually on the verge of living in history again um, yeah i think the reemergence of history exactly i think gamergate heralded the reemergence of history ironically like that was the, the towers falling maybe but no gamergate was the first <laughs> i know it sounds so stupid but it's true like it's gamergate was the first crack in the armor for history to like seep into the present once again. I don't think it could be like uh, uh, to take it, you know, to take you seriously. Like um, mm. the the proponents of Gamergate, I don't think they viewed themselves as historical actors. I think they no, were very no, much no. like eschatological in their kind of uh, view of things, where they thought that they were kind of like correcting an aberration towards like some kind of like uh, uh, liberal, like uh, consumeristic utopia. Yeah. I, I think um, and that, the like, smarter feminism, ones... they, they probably recognized like uh, feminism as like the emergence of like a kind of religious tendency, right? Because this mm. was so tied up with atheism back then. Yeah. But um, I, so I think that because its proponents and its antagonists would wouldn't be uh, uh, keen to uh, understand it that way, that it is more or less. I don't know. I mean, it's you know, it planted the seeds for I guess a lot of what we're uh, talking about now, but. I, I find it hard to ascribe any cosmic importance to anything with the word gamer. <laughs> in the maybe, maybe, okay, maybe, maybe. But to defend I, my ridiculous point. I also, I think the 2010s in general were characterized by everything was like some kind of existential crisis, some yeah. kind of like transformative gravity shifting event, you know, uh, uh uh, and that escalated more and more as you got up through. I think the last of these kind of uh, uh, crazy, like World War Three causing events was like when we killed the Iranian general Qasem Soleimani. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that was like going to be like you know launch a war with Iran, and it would be like this like globally important thing. And then it didn't Neil happen. You know, nothing happened. Uh, nothing yeah. happened with uh, uh, North Korea back when there was like brinksmanship about that. Nothing happened with uh, uh, Trump and, you know, the Russia collusion. Nothing happened. I mean, really very little came out of the election itself um, mm -hmm. other mm -hmm. than like, you know, the opening of like cultural possibilities. But then, you know, I, I think that uh, uh, coronavirus broke the pattern in that it actually did have a huge impact unlike all of these other news stories that more or less uh, uh vanished into the ether yeah i think the war war in, um the war in ukraine is probably one of them as well i feel like that has immense geopolitical significance for at least the next few decades but yeah, who knows well, and, maybe I mean, yeah and now we downplay it if anything and you know i'm not really that interested in it i feel like i always get roped into conversations about it and i just have like the mm. vague uh you know, there's heroes on both sides. You know, it's a tragic war between brothers kind of a, a, a agnosticism yeah. about it. But, uh, um, but yeah, just in terms of like the, you know, how it will impact like the food supply in the Middle East and North Africa for uh, decades to in the future. It, obviously, like a uh, uh, consequential and um, yeah, I, I, you know, the... Uh, yeah, I think that there's a lot of the news now actually is news. It's not like in the yeah. 2010s where it was like the the phantom hey. of news or the threat of news. It really is like, uh, you know, I think we're back in history. And in some in sure. some ways, I, yeah, no, the 2010s was the culmination of the 2000s in the sense of like um, 
like okay you know like the conf- <laughs> there's nothing Catherine B talks about a lot like the confessional pieces right now the confessional pieces are all about politics right like before the confessional pieces were genuinely like a sort of like psychic goring on a public stage that you know was indicative well, uh, of not like, sure exactly what trend you're alluding to well you I mean, know like maybe the confessional... i'm not reading the confessional pieces yeah, I mean, a lot of them are crap. You mean like, like you know, the, oh, I apologize for the, you know, the way I treated one sixers before I knew the truth type stuff? Oh, that uh, that happened recently. But I mean, like the 2010s confessional piece of like a lot of these writers of the New Yorker, Exo Jane, would talk about like their, you know. After hooking up with an entire frat, here's how I felt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now those become political, right? After the Amy Sokol, the Emma Sokowitz thing they become political, right? They become now my boyfriend is in a secret Nazi or whatever. Oh, that's like, funny. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or, or like I, you know, like it, it was, it was an extension of like nineties edge culture, but the 2010s had a way of like, like you were saying the looming threat of news under the like Obama years where like they wanted to like put a capstone on it because we knew um, like those years were very much like, history was waiting to come out again, right? Like, but to defend my ridiculous point about Gamergate, I would say that the people themselves, a lot of them were terrible failures and they didn't realize that they were historical actors. And you never, like, prophets are never, like, sometimes it's, like, not the prophets are never known in their own house, but the prophecy itself is never known to the prophets, right? Oh. The, you know, like, the only people, the only guy that, and, and just because I want him on my podcast, the only guy that really figured it out was probably Carl Benjamin, was probably Sargon, oh. right? He, he, that seems he, totally achievable to have him on yeah. your podcast. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I know people that know people. So, um, like, he, like, was aware. He became aware of the politics. He took his lumps when he was trying to be a politician. And he, yeah, he's very self-aware. Yeah, he read more. Um, but I think, like, those people that were ushering in Gamergate, a lot of them are never going to have any significance ever again obviously but i think that it did unleash a particular form of culture war politics and that the yeah. covidian era was like the hyper extension of it but i would say that this is one thing that nightmare vision said in in, in the night owls once are we truly free from the 2010s because recently right there was the wyatt thread about the vtubers where it's like just the basic like 2010s anti-feminist anti-trans culture war sh- schlock, right? But that was like so popular on the timeline and like industry people and like video game devs and like all these people were like just having a fit over it. So we like to think that the Covidian era was like the capstone of the 2010s. But like all these same debates and arguments, they're still with us. Like well, anti-feminism yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. I think that the 2010s were spent like laying the groundwork for the the kind of coronavirus terror regime. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, and so, you know, there's naturally going to be like continuity uh, um, in uh, in that. But I think if uh, you know, in 40 years, uh, someone's writing an AP US history essay about continuity and change between the before and after the coronavirus, you know, there's going to be like a type difference in, uh, in the expression. I also like, I guess like my reluctance about to ascribe really any importance to Gamergate is just that, um, 
I feel like there's a tendency to inflate like the importance of online discourse. Um, true, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and we know you said both ways, right? Like, I spent like a, a month in Latin America recently, and uh, it, you know, it was nice to get away from New York, where everyone reads the same timeline, and you know, we're all going to the same parties and following like the same e drama. Uh, you know, instead to be able to talk to a Salvadoran peasant or you know a maid or uh, um you know but at the same time you know we meet uh you know these nice folks from urbit over in uh in el salvador and you know they tell us that uh the the president of el salvador mr bukele is a reader of gray mirror and so you know everything kind of like comes back around and so it's like you it it kind of met it gave me an opportunity to meditate on something that i had already suspected that the uh the e sphere is both like disproportionately impactful and also like just a blip on the radar yeah uh, but, but ironically yeah, we like at the same flatter time. ourselves by believing that uh uh you know mike ma is more important than the new york times bestseller list is he i think that you could make the argument either way but uh i certainly would not take it for granted that uh that Mike Ma is more influential or more important than the New York Times bestseller list. And I think maybe what we're on the verge of is some kind of uh, uh, reemergence of institutions just to fill the void and like get over the noise of everyone trying to become the vanguard of, uh, of the avant-garde. Um, yeah. Because, you know, there's like, a, a, you know, in a truly reactionary sense, there's a need for order and consolidation uh, out of entropy. And so very true. Yeah, very true. But and so like I, I guess like that's uh, my, yeah. uh, you know, I, I mean, part of the reason why, frankly, I've been uh, uh, very undisciplined about putting out this podcast is just like the feeling that I want to break out of the e-sphere. And, you know, I want to mm. talk to people that I think are very talented, like yourself and, uh, um, mm. you know, like other friends. But really, like, I'd like to talk to people that don't have Twitter accounts or like people mm, that you know yeah, are over 70 years old and, you know, have seen much more and, you know, just uh, uh, not not people that know about the timeline in minute detail. Yeah, I'm I'm too much of like knowing every like minutia and, and lore. Like that's oh, me too. And, like, fascinates and the, me. The, it makes you so nimble, right? It makes you so witty and ironic and you've preempted 10 different levels of every argument. You have, you know the discourse inside and out and you mm -hmm. uh, understand mm -hmm. everything. And yet it, it, it's mercurial. There's like no strong like structure to it. And, uh, right. and I think that, it, you know, that type of intelligence, that type of wit and cleverness is very difficult to balance with true wisdom. True. Yeah, very true. Like it, it's... Yeah. Also like the, the lack of sincerity in it is, is like sort of when you preempt someone's thinking pattern. Now, some, sometimes it's like beneficial, like, mm -hmm. um, like for example, like I bomb on like Canadian, like libtards that are on Twitter. Cause they're all like boomer cons that like vote for like boomer libs that vote for Trudeau or like uh -huh. even like millennials. And it's like, they're very like, they have very like monosyllabic sentence structures and they're not very like, they're not even like as hyper ironic or like hyper like clever as their like American blue state like lib counterparts, right? Yeah. They're very like you could tell a Canadian lib on Twitter by a mile away, just not just by looking at their account, but like the way they like sentence things. It's mm -hmm. very much like dumb and like dumb and arrogant at the same time, right? So <laughs> you know, um, 
but that that being yeah, said, I think there's like, a very normal like kind of lib yeah. register or like a, a, a approach where it, yeah. which is proud of its own ignorance, right? Like, yeah. oh my God, you're actually reading Ayn Rand or you're actually reading uh, uh, this idiot. Like, why would you even engage with that? I'm not even going to engage with that. What? No, I can't. You know, this is so yeah. stupid. I can't even comprehend it. Like, yeah, you know, that, yeah. that pride and ignorance is a, a hallmark. Exactly. Yeah. But that being said, what you were saying though is, is apt. I noticed like that is a flaw when it comes to creating something like even in the, like, even with me as like as an artist or a right. And as a writer, it, it does become like the thoughts themselves or the pieces themselves become constituted by what you are engaging with most hours of the day. If you are terminally online. So it, it's very hard to like break away from it. But like you were saying, like, let me ask you something. Has there been the hit pieces already in like the Atlantic about um, like El Salvador being guided by like global fascism and Peter Thiel? Has that those hit pieces? Uh, been no, it hasn't been sensationalized to that degree mm. yet. I, I feel like it might be now that it's like, I feel like it's emerging more or less for the first time in a big way on like yeah. the right wing uh, uh, information sphere. But um, no, a lot of it's just been like, oh, in El Salvador, here's what's happening. But critics say that Bukele is acting a bit like a dictator and also that his methods are inhumane. Like, but it's like still relatively sober. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's not like, and it doesn't like tie him to Trump per se. It's more like he's like this crypto millennial, <laughs> but he has a dictatorial tendency, but it's viewed in, I, th I think that the media about it heretofore is like viewed it in like a very third world way. That's like uh, kind of detached yeah. from like the American political spectrum. Yeah. Whereas Bolsonaro wasn't saved from that. Cause Bolsonaro was like the Trump to, um, you know, even though like, yeah, I, like, well, I have a lot but of also, like, Bukele yeah. came from like the left. He, he emerged from the left wing party uh, from the, um, what FMLN, the, the, um, the guerrilla party that kind of quasi won the Salvadoran civil war and, uh, it, and yeah. basically like uh, was expelled from them for uh, criticizing their leadership. I have no idea how he raised the money to like launch a successful third party campaign for president, but, but he doesn't come from the political right in El Salvador, strictly speaking. He's a very like th uh, Thermidorian figure that way. Yeah. He wasn't like, he didn't come from the forces that for like, who what was the Marxist group in El Salvador, The Shining Path? No, that FMLN. Was FL, yeah, 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 yeah. He, he did come out of the FMLN, but like, you know, in the decades since the Civil War, they've kind of uh, uh, just whittled down to like a standard like libtard party. Yeah, he doesn't come from like the forces like that, the CIA, like the right wing guerrillas that were right. funded by America. Like he, he yeah, he comes right. from. So I more, think that the reaction to him is kind of delayed for that reason. Oh, but as soon as I think, as soon as they find out that he reads Grey Mirror, if I can easily, like I can go through the Atlantic New Yorker hit pieces of like, or, or foreign, what's the one that uh, Nathan Robinson runs? Current Affairs? Uh, current Affairs. I could see the current affairs or foreign affairs article where it's like, too, but also, I mean, like, frankly, techno global like, uh, fascism, techno global crypto fascism. Know, like, you know, I mean, like, Yarvin's a friend of mine, and you know, I, I it, you know, but he's kind of been absorbed by the mainstream too, in a way. Like, yeah, he, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> people don't remember this, but like four years ago, like it was actually like toxic to be pictured with him. Like, you know, that could oh, yeah. like sink your career. And now he's like the goofy, like kind of like a monarchist friend that the Washington post columnist can argue with. Like, <laughs> so. Yeah. Who is that? Okay. I don't want to say his name in case he comes after me, but you know, that one guy, 
that works for that certain government that he would like would hound Curtis throughout Silicon Valley. Um, <laughs> Travis Brown, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. wait, I didn't catch that. Sorry. Travis Brown, Travis Brown. Um, oh, I don't know who that is. Oh, you know, the guy, the Antifa guy who like, he used to work in Twitter. Like now he, he like, oh, he, would go, he would like a log Curtis Yarvin. He would like go around and like tell absolutely everyone in Silicon Valley that Curtis Yarvin's a fascist and that he's like an evil, you know, Nazi and works for the German government. And yeah, yeah. Um, no, I have you ever... the rehabilitation of Yarvin has been really interesting and it's happened mm. very recently, like in the last two years. You can even yeah. tell from his Wikipedia page because it used to be like Curtis Yarvin is an American uh, slavery apologist who believes that <laughs> black people are it, it, three standard deviations stupor, that, stupider than white people. He has said that he's not allergic to fascism and therefore must be a fascist. And like that was his Wikipedia page like <laughs> a year ago and now it's like actually like more or less accurate so curse yervin is a you know thinker that worked in silicon valley but then was a you know blogger yeah, 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 yeah. monarchist blogger and uh, yeah. founder of a tech startup or a bit yeah it's like very uh, um it's much more uh benign over now which yeah. is really interesting i think it reflects the degree to which he's been absorbed but you know the, the thing is like when you're absorbed by an entity like that a part of your dna goes into it and uh, oh definitely yeah. You know, yeah. I guess that's kind of the tension that uh, that we're all looking at, right? Is like, to what degree do we want to uh, uh, kind of be assimilated or um, or to, you know, point fingers from the outside and, you know, critique from the outside? And, I, yeah. you know, I think that the two aspects have a symbiotic relationship to one another. No, true. Exactly. Like when you were absorbed into a body, you become a part of it in a sense. Like, I don't know. I feel bad for him insulting him. I know he's your friend, but uh, no, I, I do feel like um, Curtis, like, like, okay, Moebug and Curtis are obviously, in my opinion, different entities, but maybe not, maybe not. Maybe. Like, cause like, oh, I think it, like the, the people think that there's a difference between like Curtis Yarvin now and Mencius Moebug, right? Uh -huh. Like, I feel like there still was a connection there. I mean, obviously, because oh, I think he's very continuous. Yeah. Like, yeah. He just like, I don't know, he just doesn't use like the same like uh, rhetoric. He's like much more conscious of like optics now than he was in the gray mirror or in the uh, uh, unqualified unqualified reservation. I don't, yeah. I don't think that he's uh, changed his worldview significantly at all. You know, the, no. the kind of like uh, technocratic elitism was very present from the initial iteration of it. Um, yeah. No, but I, I also think like there's no shame in admitting that like Curtis He's not like one of us in the sense of like, he's not the Chud, right? You know, he's not like. Well, he's, a, you know, by his own account, yeah, he's, he's a dark he's elf. He's a Brahmin. He's, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's literally like the that, that was the point of yeah, the dark yeah. elves and the hobbits is like, you know, the, the recognizing the type difference between what he is and like uh, the people that, uh, I mean, it's very difficult to ascertain what he views as like the, uh, um, the role of hobbits in any kind of political movement, or maybe there is none. Maybe it is as simple as like, you know, yeah. you're like an NPC, like stay out of the way. Yeah. I don't know. I, which I think he, uh, um, <laughs> you know. he genuinely is like one of the smartest people I know. And I think that can be an epistemic weakness actually, because, you know, if you're accustomed to like skipping three grades and you're the smartest person in the room that you're in and, you know, that will predispose you to overvalue elitism in your worldview. 
But, I mean, there's also, 100%, like, no 100%. need to conflate, like, kind of, like, elite theory as, like, a descriptive model with, like, elitism as an attitude uh, towards, mm -hmm. like, regular chunguses, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, 100%. Like, I mean, I feel like his analysis of the elite is, pro is, is a product of his position and his education and his gravitas because really, like, the current elites, like, I mean, they're, they're not even, like, I don't know, they're not even, like, buying in some Kiefer paintings anymore. They're, like... They're, they're like indicative of the most rea like hideous reactionary political catch on the, on the left. Like, the, like they're even their aesthetic sensibilities of the elite. Like Cur Curtis has very much like the view of the elite is still like 1990s Berkeley. They go to Burning Man. Um, they, they, you know, they listen to, um, I don't know what they will listen to, the but they, you know, they, yeah, yeah, Brahms. Like they'll they'll, they'll buy Anselm Kiefer paintings. Like I mean, I'm saying this because Anselm Kiefer is one of my favorite artists ever. But like you know what I mean. Like the they'll <laughs> they still like appreciate the arts. They still go out of their way to have an aristocratic like sensibility and cultivation. But the elites nowadays are not like this. Like they're they're like they they don't they I I think like people. The problem I have with a lot of like um the post left people like is that they have this analysis where they believe that the elites are thoroughly cynical capitalists. But I do think a lot of the elites probably believe in the ideology that they're promoting, at least on a meta level. They do like, they do believe that, you know, Oh yeah. Trans rights I mean, or human rights. Blah, like, blah, blah, uh, blah. Uh, you know, whether I think there's a really meaningful, uh, um, debate or yeah. characterization of, you know, the idea of like the woke uh, um, NIMBY that's like, oh, I want to build more homeless shelters, but not in my neighborhood versus yeah. like the, the ideologue who's like, no, I want them in my neighborhood. I want to die. I want to be murdered. Like, you know, and like, <laughs> yeah, both, yes, kind of, like both are real tendencies. Yeah. Like, I think that you yeah. can't really have a full picture without accounting for both. And like, they're both tendencies within the individual lib where, yeah. you know, yeah. they'll do things yeah. that are like, they're still self-interested to some degree, but they'll also do things totally contrary to their self-interest out of religious uh, uh, devotion. Uh, yeah. 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 Robert, my good friend, uh, you should have on the show, Robert Stark. He talks about oh, yeah. the Yimbies. Yeah. Yeah. Like the yes in my backyards. Like how I think he's well, a good friend he, of Forney, right? Yeah. 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 Um, well, because I think, well, because he lives in California, Robert Stark. So he like is more acquainted with that culture. And like there's like, a huge amount of like suicidal Yimbies in California, yeah. apparently. <laughs> like it's, you know, yes, it's good that I walk through needles and, and you know, defecation every single day and you know it's a good thing yeah the it's Vancouver, like the and the yeah, well. are both like sides of the same coin like you you know you really yeah. can't like account for the phenomenon without uh acknowledging both um, yeah you've uh so you frequently allude to your uh, uh canadian heritage um, oh yeah to what degree is this like a uh self-deprecating kind of ironic illusion or do you think that there's a, a core essence to that that's actually meaningful and uh, uh and that you do feel an affinity for well yeah that's a great question actually um it's well first of all i think like being the son of like a an you know an ellis islander well okay it's it's complicated because um my father's family's been here for like 100 years right you know um but still like thoroughly of Italian ancestry. Um, my grandfather came over here after the war. Uh, 
because his relatives are here. So, you know, my, my father definitely remembers an older Dominion version of Canada. Like, you know, even like pre-Trudeau senior a little bit. And, you know, definitely like there was still, even after Trudeau, there still was that, you know, old level, like, like more like uh, suburban or rural Canada. But, you know, my mother's side, definitely, you know, my mother came here in the 70s, right, from uh, Brazil, because mm -hmm. uh, my mother's side mm -hmm. of the family, they were Italian expats to Brazil. So, mm -hmm. you know, I have both of that experience, but I do feel like um, hmm. I'm definitely an alien to the way things are in Canada now. Hmm. Like, de most definitely. Um, I, I thoroughly despise the sort of current order of things. But I do feel like having talked to other Leafs who are on the political right, there is still something about what Canada could have been pre-Trudeau, what Canada was, that is still, still could be there, right? That, that still could be, um, but the difficulty is that as we go on further from the roots of what Canada was, that sort of distinction between the Anglophone and the Francophone that's that's almost thoroughly erased by Americanism, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, like really the sort of globalization of America, like Canada was really the first victim of it. Like the, this is what George Grant talks about. But I still feel that within the bones of Canada, even though it's very hard for me to see because I so thoroughly detest the sort of like post-national, like we are the world, multicultural stuff that like, you know, Trudeau embodies, like Justin embodies. I still feel that there is, in my most charitable of moments, there is something there that could be fostered into creating Canada anew that is in opposition to the worst excesses of Americanization, but something mm. that can be created as like, what is Canada? And mm. also the worst excesses of like current, like in vogue um, Canadian Liberal Party ideology. Right. So like I mentioned the group of seven, because I think the group of seven, like in terms of a, a truly Canadian art form, that is, that was different from more European trends of impressionism at the time. When you look at the group of seven, you look at something that is very thoroughly Canadian. Like there is something there. There's something that's in the landscape that connects us. With the group of seven. What is it that's uh, uh, salient about it? I feel like their approach to the landscape that was different than the European impressionists because they had to deal with, a, um, they had to deal with conditions that were different in terms of the European landscape was thoroughly cultivated. Like and framing was already there, like right. everywhere you turn, um, you know, for example, there was this one art critic that said that Monet, um, in Giverny created a harem of nature where everything was like crafted and, 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 uh -huh. uh, you know, the, the, the landscape and the, and the forests were cultivated. They were not, you know, untouched by the human hand, right? So the, the you know, so the group of seven, they learned from people who went to continental Europe. For example, in my local area, uh, well, not local, it's more in Hamilton. Uh, one of the my favorite artists that was uh, actually my, my father's favorite artist when he would go to the gallery, the National Gallery with his mother, uh, my grandmother, who I, I never met, but, you know, she died before I was born. But, uh, you know, one of his favorite painters was called uh, William Blair Bruce. And he okay. studied under Monet. He studied under Monet. And then he would, he went back to Canada 
And a lot of the group of seven um, interacted with him around the Toronto area. And the difference being is that with Canada, as a new frontier, their artwork reflected that. So you have a group of seven having very abstract landscapes because they had to find a way to deal with a nature that was largely unmolested by the forces of like modernization, right? So, but also when you look at, for example, Emily Carr, uh, and you, of course, nowadays totally verboten because of like, you know, current Canadian ideology, but when she would engage with um, indigenous forms of artwork and she would like paint totems in Vancouver, you know, around Vancouver Island, right? Um, nowadays, like no, no like European descendant artist could ever do this nowadays. Cause they like, for example, um, this was a few years ago and this is why I will never paint this subject matter. There was this, uh, this college student, she was, um, I think she grew up on a reservation and her art teacher was an indigenous woman. Right. Uh, but of mm -hmm. course, like she was painting a lot of like traditional, uh, Iroquois indigenous artwork, right. Like as a theme, but then she was like accused of cultural genocide. Like, you know, it's a, um, I never touch any of the subject matter, but anyways, the point being is that, you know, while Emily Carr was adjacent to the group of seven, but the point being is like, when you look at a group of seven painting, you look at something that kind of does speak to like what Canada was and what is thoroughly Canadian. You look at them and you could like see it. Right. But unfortunately, as time goes on, that thread gets weaker and weaker because now the prevailing ideology that, that, you know, basically funds the, you know, most work works of public art, you know, the Canadian culture grant. Now it becomes this like multicultural thing. Like the, the best indication of it is um, the CBC or state broadcaster. They had this, uh, they have this YouTube commercial where it's like, and like, nobody watches these shows anymore. Right. And the CBC produces where it said, um, Oh, what's the tagline? It's not about being Canadian. It's about who you are in Canada. Because there's no such thing as Canadian. Mm -hmm. Like, what is a Canadian? Um, you know, I mean, I'm going to watch the hockey, the Leafs game tonight. Is that a Canadian? You know, watch the Leafs game, right? Like, yeah, you say sorry a lot. Yeah, yeah. But, but you know what I mean? Like, the point being is that there has to be a sense of what is a Canadian that is not just an American but also not like this, because that's impossible. Uh, the the sort mm -hmm. of like LARPing the old world of like, you know, I'm going to embrace the sort of like Anglophone loyalist roots. Like, I mean, there's right. something there. There's a heritage there. But oh. it's like, uh, there's something, there's a project that needs to be created, I feel. If you, mm -hmm. if you are a right-wing person in Canada, there can't just be... And I'm guilty of this because most of my audience is American. Most of the things I talk about are American. Uh, uh -huh. But when you're on the political right in Canada, you're sort of like a weird, like bastard child of an American. Because like America's mm -hmm. everything. America's more right wing than us. Um, no, it's not that America's more right wing because there are parts of America that are just as libertarian as Canada. It's that America has the possibility of a right wing politics the way that Canada does not. Because mm -hmm. really like because Canada is like in some sense, a post-political country in the sense of our managerialism is so thoroughly ingrained in every aspect of life that the possibility of reactionary politics in Canada is like either a very long ways off or like virtually impossible. 
But I think like having talked to some people who are Canadian as well, it's like there must be a spirit of creating a sense of what Canada and being a Canadian is that isn't just like either multicultural slop or some kind of like weird, like I'm, I'm basically an American neocon, but Canadian, like, you know what I mean? So well, I think the American it, neocon yeah. identity may be like closer to reality, uh, you know, mm, yeah, it, just yeah. like descriptively in terms of kind of like recognizing uh, a lot of not just Canada, but a lot of like uh, uh, satellite nations as kind of a, more or less American client states. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know, to like kind of affix to an American identity at that point might. I mean, it's weird, right? You're never going to, you will never be a real American. You're, you no. know, you're, no, but, of course. Uh, yeah. but, but I don't know, in a sense, that does actually feel kind of uh, uh, authentic. I mean, I, 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 I'm drawn to like a lot of the Canadian regional identities, but I oh, guess yeah. you're not, you're neither a, a Quebecois nor Albertan nor, a, you know, First Nations. So that's uh, yeah, yeah, not on the table for you. I only ask that because, you know, I feel like the, uh, the Canadian dissident really finds himself in the strange bind where you feel oh, yeah. silly going to bat for such an entity as Canada and like trying to like fill that in with like positive attributes that you associate with like a culture when it feels very deracinated. Um, yeah, but at the same point, you never want to be like a, a, you know, dismissive of your, I mean, a lot of people do want to be dismissive of their own uh, uh, upbringing and culture. And Oh yeah. I don't know. Maybe there are some cultures that have elected suicide and that deserve to be dismissed. But um, I would but say current Canada has elected suicide and probably deserves to be dismissed. <laughs> yeah. No. Definitely. Yeah. Canada's number one in the chopping. It's just world. like you know. I guess there's like a kind of uh, uh, reluctance to be like glib about your heritage, even if it's like mm. a heritage that's very debased. Yeah, I, just by virtue of it, like a lot of people give me a lot of crap because they're like, well, Gio, you're too pessimistic. It's like, really, you're just a spiritual American. You probably you probably should either move to Alberta or America. And I'm like, uh -huh. well, maybe. But I mean, I, I've entertained the idea of moving to America. I'm not going to lie. I have a lot of tweets about like, oh, my God, get me out of here, especially during the Covidian era. It's like, oh, my God, get me out of here. But <laughs> at the same time, I mean, the life that I know is here in Canada. Right. They, they, I can't escape it. But I mean, maybe if I move to Alberta, who knows? Maybe. But uh, that's like even Alberta, like I hate to say it, like a lot of Albertans, the ones who are like on the political right uh, or whatever that means in Canada. Like, I, I believe that Canada doesn't have a very well defined political right. Um, we had a loyalist right, but that was like, you know, that was different. That was like when Canada was um, Canada did well, have that's an identity that seems implicitly anti-Canadian. Yeah, exactly. That like that one. that's something that like the the royalist like roots of dominion that is obviously something that you can go back to. Canada did have a version of high toryism that George Grant talked about, but that's been extinguished. I hate to say it. Like you have to like literally bring it from the dead because a lot of people like the most right-wing Canadians out in Alberta, out, out in the prairies, they basically are like the Yellowstone like American larpers. They're like you know going to the stampede like they're they want to be american they're like let's become the 50 was it 51st state or um yeah how, how many states america's 50 states right yeah 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 it's like america want, like they want to be like the 51st state they're like let's secede to become america right like but uh -huh. but like you know like the the sort of like fox news version of america not like the libtarded 
like Biden Obama version of America. Like it's like, yeah, a lot of Canadian, if you're a political, if you're on the right wing in Canada, like whatever that means, it's like, you're like America is like, you know, you want to be an American, like all of the East celebs that came out of Gamergate, a lot of them came from Canada because Ezra Levant like fed the pipeline of East celebs to America. So it's like, uh-huh. you know, it's like, um, I feel like there must be a possibility, but at the same time, like the, like I do have this sort of like bad faith of like, I know that I don't want to counter signal my own nation, but if my nation is intent to like, not look at itself as a nation, but rather like a global airport, yeah. then it's like, yeah, it's like, Oh, what am I going to do? Oh, well, it also probably America. feels silly to like take a stand for it and like, you know, chimp out about, you know, yeah. how dare you insult my homeland when, yeah, it's, yeah, that's you bad know, and the funny well. thing is, you're actually only the uh, the second uh, Canadian fascist named Giovanni to uh, to make an appearance on this podcast. Whoa, whoa! They, you have uh, another episode one. Episode eleven, uh, a personal favorite of mine, honestly. Was, uh, I, I interviewed uh, this guy. Uh, uh, I don't know his. He doesn't have a surname or anything. He's just G- Giovanni. But uh, um, he used to run a Telegram channel called Futurism Forever, now renamed as Beautiful Monsters, and he's like one of these guys who loves Mussolini, but hates Hitler. And, uh, you know, oh, yeah, I know very... futurism forever. Yeah. 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 So he's a, a, a previous, uh, a guest and just purely by coincidence, you know, uh, this is the second time I find myself speaking to an Italian Canadian named Giovanni about the lack of revolutionary potential in Canada. <laughs> I should talk to him. I, I know about him. I don't know if he likes me though. He doesn't follow me on Twitter, but maybe he, Maybe if I, t- I know he talked to my friend Fen de Villiers, so. Um, well, he's you know. very uh, uh, particular. He's very, uh, um, what's yeah, the word? Yeah, incredibly particular. He's very uh, uh, particular about like the, you know, ideological minutiae in a way that I think that we're not, where, you know, we're mm. like more intent, whereas he's like much more doctrinaire in terms of like, uh, uh, you know, this is like pure fascism. We're not national socialism. Like we have no common cause with NS or with like conservatism or, uh, you know, anything else. Yeah. Revisionism. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I like Dolphus. I don't like Hitler. I like Dolphus. I don't like the Austrian. Pain. <laughs> no, because like that was kind of like what it ended up. A, a lot of the podcast ended up being like talking about different regimes and him explaining to me why they weren't really fascist, including mm. Dolphus and including. Like, oh my God, he's even basically anyone but Mussolini. Uh, um, but Not no, he's, he's a good guy. Uh, you know, I, I would encourage uh, if it can be arranged because it's good to, I, I don't know. I just like uh, that perspective and he's been very friendly to me and supportive yeah. of the project. So, yeah, um, that's good. Maybe we'll yeah, make it out. You know, we also, I think we agreed uh, just at a glance that uh, uh, Canada was the country with the least revolutionary potential out of anywhere. So anywhere I think like, world. yeah, Canada, um, Australia has more revolutionary potential than we do because I feel like the the thing is like, okay, the the real red pill. And my, my one friend described this to me once. um, My one friend Horace is that. uh, So shout out to Horace Finkelstein on Twitter. Uh, He he said, um, it may have been him where, you know, if you look at the population of Canada, if you look at Anglosphere, Anglophone Canada, basically the British bred, the Canadian migrants to become like basically agrarian serfs. Right. And so Canada, there was this great CBC interview in the fifties with, with some politician where he's like, maybe it's good if Canada looked at the view from the outside 
to look at the world, like to, he meant America, right? To look at like, there's all this happening where America is becoming the center of the world to look at it from that outsider perspective and said, you know, maybe if we're calm and we're like, you know, regionalist and we're sort of like wholesome chungus, you know, communitarian, maybe that's better, right? Maybe that is reactionary. Um, but really that the, the sort of complacency of an agrarian, like largely agrarian population that the British more or less encouraged, right? Mm-hmm. When you have like, take that and then take like post Pierre Trudeau, like woke tardation, multiculturalism, you have this like amazing, like noxious mix of like American neoliberal politics meets a very docile, like go along to get along, don't make waves, um, you know, I'll, I'll like, I'll handle my business. You handle yours population. And like, then you have like, you know, one of the most obnoxious forms of like, let people enjoy things. Um, you know, let people enjoy things. Don't make waves. Don't, don't, don't offend people sort of like, you know, cause behind the, the whole like meme of like Canadian niceness behind that is sort of like a, a form of complacency that like Americans just don't get. Like Americans mm-hmm. find very alien, right? Like yeah. even like libtarded Americans, they'll still have like that latent American, like, you know, uh, don't mess with me, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, like the stereotype of an American when they go to a foreign country, uh, Canadians like behind that, like niceness, quote unquote, is a form of social conformity that I feel like a lot of people on the political right in Canada find like so utterly humiliating uh, cause you know, Canadians were never kind of like that. Like Canadians used to be very like tough and like very regionalist and you know what I mean? Like Canadians used to be very, what, uh, what historical yeah. circumstances do you think brought about like that culture of kind complacency? Um, it was definitely in the adaptation of- that comes from living in a society of immigrants with like different value systems or. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was that plus the colonial experience that the British basically bred into Canadians, mm. plus the shaky foundation of having like a society that was Francophone and Anglophone. And of course, like the third yeah. thing would be like, um, they say that Ukrainians were like actually the third thing because there was like, a, like the biggest diaspora of Ukrainians are in Canada, by the way. So they were here for a long time. Then you have the Chinese, then you have us Italians, right? So Canada, like there was always like a shakiness to, to its like foundation in terms of its identity, right? So, but also the the sort of um the the social complacency really kicked into gear with like Americanization in the '60s, and then for example in Quebec you have the Silent Revolution, where uh, I believe mm-hmm. Ireland now is like trying to speed run that with like their whole like you know um, abandoning their Catholicism and like like all that stuff happened in the sixties in Quebec with the silent revolution. Right. Mm So um, you have a lot of these pressures on Canada as a small nation with a vaster, like with a a very big, like regionalist impulse, but also a huge landscape, a huge resource base, but also like an insecurity in terms of its population. So all these factors combined towards this, like Uber managerial social conformity, that we find ourselves in. Um, mm-hmm. Now, if any Canadians listening to this, I'm not like 100% like on the facts of it. 
like I'm sure there's friends of mine who are Canadian that could probably like fill this in because like, you know, let's face it, I'm a son of an immigrant. So I, I don't like, um, I don't have the same like foundation of being like an Anglophone or a Francophone, like a heritage Canadian. I do have like a lot of respect for the heritage Canadians. I feel like there was a time where they truly were exceptional people. Right. Um, even, even, you know, as much as I feel like a lot of them are kind of like, you know, <laughs> personality wise, not exactly great, but even like the, the Franco, even the Quebecois was an exceptional person back in the day, you know? So, um, I have a lot. Of I, I mean, I have like a good impression yeah. of the Quebecois overall. I don't know, you know, I, I don't well, speak know, from a wealth experience, but I mean, I know that yeah. the, the you know politically they're very uh, um, uh, compromised, but but I don't know. Yeah. I I think it's yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah, I you mean, know, they I, can I support, be pegged as like being I arrogant them in their war of liberation against the the oppressor. You know, whatever. <laughs> I'll, I'll just sign on to it without knowing anything. Um, no, I think like there's a lot of like there's something to be admired in the Quebecois in terms of their 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 quest for an identity. Unfortunately, I feel like um when they abandoned their Catholicism in the sixties, I feel like the Quebecois like abandoned a part of themselves that was so very like fundamental and deep that yeah. like it's sort of um it really like destroyed a lot of them, you know. Um, but I do feel like there still is something within the Quebecois that that yearns for an identity. That that's why they're so schizophrenic when it comes to their language. Like they they really very just to replace her with Celine Dion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. That's a good way of putting it. It's true. Um, but but no, I admire. I like to wrap it up. Like I, I admire like heritage Canadians. You know, mm -hmm. I feel like there, there's a potentiality there. But I mean, um, the political left in Canada is so thoroughly like ingrained in everything that like really they run the show. And um, like even the NDP, for instance, like there's no such like there's no reason for the new Democrat Party to exist because Trudeau like has outwoke them and the conservatives have outworking classed them. So it's like hmm. they're not going to go back to like working class, like to like um, British labor politics of, of yesteryear. Like that's not hmm. going to happen. You know, like yeah. it's like I don't know what Jagmeet Singh is going to do because like he's basically like Trudeau's Janney, you know, so it's like, what are you going to mm -hmm. do? Um, yeah, Canada is very interesting. Like when I think about Canada in this space of like talking to someone, I'm much more charitable. But like when I see like the usual like ephemera of like news articles, it's like, oh, my God, you know, it's like especially during COVID, it was like really like. I was truly like incensed throughout the whole two years. I was like, I can't believe this. We are like ground zero of like, <laughs> you know, the retardation of it. Like, mm. So it really like, it, it really like black pill doomer maxed me in other words, in terms of like what was happening. But you know, if I, if I reflect on it, like in a more calm, like conversation, like what we're doing, then I, I can sort of like see the merits of Canada okay. being unique and not just being America because unfortunately mm -hmm. like, a lot of Canadians, a lot of like liberal Canadians have this like weird, like left-wing nationalism where it's like, we're not America. Like, you know, we're not, yeah. we're not America. Um, there was this one, I always go back to this example cause it's so good. Cause I'm a pro wrestling fan where Bret Hart did this promo in the middle of Madison square gardens. It was like a heel promo where, um, it's in his documentary. It's in uh, Bret Hart um, wrestling with shadows, right? Uh, no, that was Ultimate Warrior. It was called Bret Hart, uh, Bret the Hitman Hart, 
his documentary they made right when the Montreal screw job happened where he had this promo where he's like, um, in, in America, in Canada, we take care of each other. We have healthcare. We don't have gun violence or racism. It's like, and of course the Americans are just like, boo, get the fuck out of here. You know, like, <laughs> um, but, you know, but no, but Bret Hart, was saying in a very like bombastic way, the sort of like wholesome chungus, like left-wing communitarianism that embodied like an older version of Canada before like woke tardation, like really took hold in the two thousands because of like, Mm -hmm. you know, Stephen Harper and in a reaction to Stephen Harper. Right. So a lot of Canadian lib like libtards, they basically, as much as they hate America, they're basically just like, they, they take cues from like, blue state american like blue state liberals like they love like they love obama they like biden because he's not trump they believe in the russia collusion thing like they think stephen harper was like the template for trump or some like weirdo like balloon on theory <laughs> like it's you know Har- stephen harper led to donald trump that's what they believe so it's like you know oh and P- peter Palav- pierre palavra is like trump 2.0 in canada uh, which is, you know, really like the Austrian painter to them. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, um, very interesting, very interesting thing about Canada. Uh-huh. So, hang tight one minute. I just, yeah, no problem, no problem. It's more like uh, one second, but yeah. Um, did you uh did you grow up in the area that you live in now or are you oh, yeah. transplanted to the Niagara region? Oh okay. No no I grew up here. Yeah I grew How, up here. Um, um What are your parents like? Oh, uh, you know, my old man has a, you know, a small concrete business. Uh, my mother recently retired as a prep cook. Um they, they, you know, a typical like Italian immigrant <laughs> like I guess, you yeah. know. Um but no, I the Niagara region is very interesting to me because I feel like um, as much as we're kind of like the crud bucket of Ontario, it's like, there's something unique about the aesthetic of it that like um, a lot of like uh, what I do enjoy, like watching a lot of Canadian um, indie films, right? Like a lot of these, you know, very quiet. Some people would say boring character pieces because a lot of our film, like the ones that are filmed around the region, you can tell like there's something unique about, um, the Niagara region itself, like there's very like suburbia attached to the, like, you know, rural places and the vineyards. And like, there's, there's something about the attitude that we have here that is different than like in the GTA around Toronto. So yeah, I mean, I like living where I live. I feel like it's, there's a lot of redeeming qualities to it. Um, but you know, um, I lived here my whole life. Uh, I lived in like more or less a hom- like a homogenous, like little Italy, zone of the Niagara region. So, um, yeah, you know, um, uh, how, man, that's an interesting question. Cause like, how can I describe, you know, you know, a typical Canadian upbringing, I guess, Canadian suburban, you know, <laughs> nothing too fancy. I'm, I live a very boring existence, put it that way. Um, oh. maybe one day I'll visit New York right. and I'll visit all the to. people I know on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. You, you really ought to, you know, you, I'm sure you'd be received with, uh, with open arms. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah but uh um yeah you alluded to like your you know kind of like working class background and i was wondering uh, um how that uh 
how that interacted with uh with your interest in the arts and uh you know the the career path that you ultimately chose oh it's very interesting i feel like being like sort of um a, a bit of like i guess you would say the petit bourgeoisie like the small business environment like construction is very interesting because on the one end like you are like middle or upper middle class but then you do have like way more exposure to the quote unquote working class than like a lot of people that you know you grew up with or went to school with so it's like i have a, a good idea like i grew up around people my whole life who are basically like on that razor edge between like working class and like lower class right so um when a lot of people like on the left and right who like to reify that experience i i tend to be like it's kind of stupid because like i actually like you know what i mean like i'm not like to use your experience of like the quote unquote working class as like a um shelling point is like stupid and larpy and you know um not i mean we're defending larping but you know what i mean like you know, these people that talk about the working class all day no but in terms of my education i very much was like um i didn't relate to a lot of people uh like growing up, like I, I'm basically one of the few people who went to like a grad program that I grew up with. Like a lot of people that I grew up with uh, went to like, you know, more or less like um, either blue collar or other type of like not like white collar, like non-academic jobs. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, I'm unique in that sense of like I'm the the very few like, you know, sued, uh, you know, academic uh, bores that chose that path, you know, that I grew up with. But um, no, I feel like it's it's interesting because you have a different you have a lot of, you have a, a a different experience of things than the people that you went to like university with, because a lot of people I went to university with they're they're of that like you know they grew up around the GTA they know people who are academics or their family members were academics or their family members were like you know professional people like um me I was sort of like an outsider in that regard I was sort of like you know like the dark hobbit but um. Yeah, it was very interesting in that regard. Like, it was interesting to know, like, having, like, a very good spectrum of, like, different people I've interacted with. But then at the same time, I mean, nowadays, I'm sort of, like, hermitized in uh, in some regard. I got to admit, I, I I do live kind of like hermitized. a hermetic type of life. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, you know, I, I sort of, this is what I do. And I'm very, like, I work from home. And, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, yeah, so... I should go out more. Put it that way. I should go out more. <laughs> uh, well, I'm very, I, you know, I encourage almost everyone to go out more. I just feel like, you know, well, I, I don't know. But on the other hand, you're committed to a life of the mind and towards like higher order uh, pleasures of uh, art and uh, and intellectual life. So I can hardly begrudge you for well, uh, for your lifestyle. You make it seem that. more fancier than it sounds. But yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess so. I That's guess the so. idea, you know. It's the idea. Um, yeah, exa- exactly. You know. <laughs> Yeah, I, don't know. I just you know uh, I, mean? like, I was reminded of. Yeah. Oh, oh well, sorry. Go ahead, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was reminded of my interview with uh, uh, Michael Rechtenwald. Uh, if you're familiar with him, he's like the uh, anti woke NYU professor. Uh, oh, that guy! Yeah, yeah, I read that guy. He's he's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. no, and you know, I was a student at NYU contemporary uh, contemporaneously with him uh, having his whole uh, situation, and, like uh, uh, the yeah. circumstances of his departure from the university. But uh, he also came from like a very working class background in Pittsburgh. And, uh, you know, probably similar 
uh, that you could relate to. And I relate to, to a lesser degree because, you know, my dad is a, was a business, also a business owner in a blue collar industry, but on a somewhat larger scale where he, uh, you know, owned like, uh, a, a very, uh, large, uh, auto parts warehouse. Oh, nice. So nice. he was in the, uh, the, the Napa, um, situation, but, um, really, eh? Oh man. What's that? No, really. Eh? That's, <clears throat> it's interesting. Yeah. The, um, and, and it, you know, it, it's, uh, um, but yeah, we, we kind of talked a little bit about, uh, I, I suppose like the lack of understanding, uh, between both parties, between oneself and one's family, if you're, you know, from a, a certain milieu and end up in a, um, <coughs> in some kind of artistic vocation. Um, and also, you know, kind of like a, a maturing and, be, you know, getting over that and, you know, trying to come to terms with your roots and embrace that, you know? Yeah, exactly. How has your experience been in that respect? It's interesting. Like, I feel like, um, When you're an artist, it's much easier to like tell people what you do yeah. because they see it. Right. Like, but when it comes yeah, to. Yeah, Rexwell like, had to explain that he was like a continental philosopher. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it's when it comes to like explaining, like, what do you do? Oh, I'm a podcaster and I write and I'm an artist or oh, podcaster. What do you talk about? I'm like, well, um, li listen, I'm, I'm admired by thousands of internet racists. No, I'm, I would never, say, <laughs> maybe why well, I've actually, I've used that in, in my some work family. in some working class bars that could go over pretty well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, but of course but like, no, I, I, the cultures of racism are very different too. Yeah. Yeah. There's, Oh God. Yeah. There's vastly different, um, like HBD, like reading, like, Steve Saylor blogs and like, you know, chud racism. Like there's a huge ocean between the two, but, um, no, no, I mean, you can't it's... say that about them. They're God's chosen people and they're our greatest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. oh my God. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, no, I, it's funny though. I mean, it's, um, depending where you are, you could probably could convince people like a large swath of people of like anti-Semitism, but, uh, no, I mean, I, don't know, I mean, I, maybe this is like an American thing, but I honestly feel like uh, uh, most middle Americans like have a very, very loose concept of what a Jew is and yeah. are almost incapable yeah. of prejudice against them purely on the basis that it's like kind of an empty category in their mind. Like, I think that I think that a lot of like the American hobbits, to use the lingo, think of a Jew and like they just imagine like someone in, you know, that lives exactly like them but like with the star of David and like, they don't believe in Jesus, but they're basically Christian. <laughs> yeah. 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 A lot of, yeah. A lot of like evangelicals, I guess in America believe that, you know, I mean, they don't, they don't picture like a New York deli owner, you know what I mean? They don't like, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe nowadays. Yeah, no, maybe, I mean, well, well cause yeah. I come from like a place like this and I had a very poor concept of what a Jew was until I came, went to New York. Like I wouldn't have like seen Woody Allen and like immediately clocked him and like, Oh, like that's a Jew. Like I would have just been like, Oh, that's like a dorky guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't, you need, you need a lot of like esoteric racism to like code him as a, you know, as a Jew. Um, or like living in New York, I guess like it's much more, um, you know, obviously it's much more apparent. Right. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah. What were you saying yeah. before that? Oh, I was gonna, yeah. Yeah. What was I saying? Um, oh, I was saying like, it, it's, you do struggle to like quantify it, like, 
like quantify like what you actually do. Like you're like, oh yeah, I'm a podcaster, but what does that mean? It's like, what do you podcast about? It's like it is it is struggle like to to come up with like an adjective, like a like a verb, sorry, a verb to like describe, you know, what yeah. you do. Um but then you know, some people like you get used to it after a while. Um I don't have any like uh how should I describe it? A lot of people like I think this is the genesis of the Hicklib, by the way, is that a lot of people that like do come from a working class background, they get, and then they later on go into university or they'll go into like a white collar profession. They will have like this utter, like this subtle contempt for their upbringing. And they're like, you know, I guess because I grew up in like more or less like, um, I grew up in an older neighborhood in Niagara, but like, not like, um, I never like coded myself as like upper middle class nouveau riche, like living in like a, like a sort of, you know, newer subdivision. Uh, you know, I, I, so I'm, I'm much more like, um, not that I identified more with like the, the working or the underclass, but like I, because I like grew up around a lot of people like that, I never have like the instinctual, um, how shall I say it? Like the, like the like oh i'm better than you because i went to university like that's i, I don't know a lot of people have that and i'm like eh, it's not me you know mm-hmm. i i like not I, I like to think that's not me because right. of, you know right. growing up around people that you know worked their whole lives in in you know construction uh it's not like a lot of people that escape being working class they have that resentment of like now i have to prove to people that I'm not a hick, you know? So it's like, the hick lib is a creature of bad faith, in other words, because they have Uh to prove to people, they're like, I'm not that background anymore. I'm sophisticated, but I will revert back to the aesthetic affectation of my background. But it's like the Yellowstone meme, right? The Yellowstone meme, like, you know, around these parts, boy, we, we don't tolerate bigotry around these parts. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's you know, the, yellow, the yellow soy memes. Yeah. The Hicklib, you know, by the way, Canadians invented the Hicklib, by the way. Canadians invented the Hicklib. Really? I was because, just thinking about this yeah. while we were talking about Canada earlier, because, you know, I, I we have that impression, right, that the Canadians and Australians like our Hicklibs. But I was thinking, yeah. like, I, I feel like the only reason why they're more progressive than America, or at least like the main reason is that they're more urban, because like yeah. the Canadian yeah. wilderness is more inhospitable than the American wilderness, like there's less like farmland or whatever, which results in like a higher urban population. So in some sense, I feel like Americans like are the Hicks, like, uh, uh, yeah, you know what I mean? Canada has a different hit cult, like a different hit culture that can be like the unironic Yellowstone meme. But hmm. at the same time, you're right. Like most, like um, if you go to like around here, of course it's changing because of the housing prices. Like a lot of people that are like, like they come from Toronto to live down here because like the GTA is becoming like untenable to live if you're, especially like if you're of a lower income. So but more or less if you like demographically it's sort of like in england where if you go like outside of the major cities you're gonna find like heritage canadians you're gonna find like more or less um Mm -hmm. anglophone francophone also like newly like um like more or less european immigrants that came here like 100 years ago you're gonna find them here 
right? But if you go to the big cities, yeah, I just like, feel like the yeah. uh, if you were to like go per capita, like I feel like uh, both like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, whatever, any one of them would have like a higher per capita share of like macchiato drinker, avocado yeah. toast eater, like bicycles to work people. So, no, oh, yeah, definitely. I don't know. I, I don't know how to square that with like the kind of like hicklib concept. I think it's because when the hicklib, like um, either they go to university, they become resentful or they're transplants because of housing prices, they're transplants from yeah. like urban centers. So they'll, they'll get like the affectation of it. Like there's a show here. I don't watch it, but uh, if you want to know what a hicklib is, watch the show letter Kenny. That's like the hicklib uh -huh. show. Um, they're like, that's mm -hmm. what the hicklib is. You know, they're like, they have the aesthetic of like an Albertan, a, like a prairie person, but yet they're like, you know, they're like into polyamory and all that type of stuff. So, um, no, but like also, yeah, Canada, like Canada, like basically the Commonwealth, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, they're all very urbanized um, places. Like most of Canadian populations, like most newly land immigrants, they tend to stay in like Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, um, Ottawa. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely like Canada has like much more of a starker ruralization and urbanization than even America. America like truly is the land of the suburbs in some ways. But America do does have like huge urban density as well. So mm -hmm. yeah, Amer America might be the real hicks. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Um so the, yeah. um Yeah, I uh okay, I've been dying to ask this, but uh do you have a black eye? Oh, here? Here? Yeah. No, no, it's no, it's a permanent thing because I, I I sleep on my side. Oh, shit. So, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean yeah, to be no rude problem, by no uh, asking. I, I was just like, holy shit, like, did he get into a fight or something? No, I used to sleep in my... Yeah, actually, I did get into a fight. I got into a fight with Med Gold. I owned his ass. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, no, uh, I, I used to sleep on my stomach. So my, uh -huh. my hand would be like there all the time. So it's just, it's permanent uh -huh. at this point. But um, Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's that's like such some, an interesting uh, uh, birthmark origin story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's if you look like it's basically like ingrained. Yeah, oh. I mean, they. I think my doctor said like you could get surgery to get it removed. But I'm like, nah, I don't want that. I don't want to remove since it. Uh, since I changed the topic, I'll show you. I drew this picture of you while we were recording. So <laughs> that's pretty nice. Maybe yeah. I should draw one of you one day. Yeah, you give me a good enough picture. Yeah, yeah. Um, but. <laughs> That's really good. No, but yeah, yeah this yeah. I always had this. You better not just level. like draw like the happy merchant, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'll be really mad if you should, if you turn around the paper and just like uh, the happy you know, rubbing the hands together. Yeah, yeah, the happy merchant. You know, I, would, I would take great grievous offense to that. Um, Are you Jewish uh, or no? I, no? I have to ask. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. What do you think I am? Hmm. Some type of Slavic? No. Anglo? Oh, what are I you, mean, like, what are you? somewhat. Oh, man, what are you then? I, I can't pin it down. Like, uh, uh, more or less, like, German, Scots, Irish, and Iranian in equal measure, so. Oh, the Iranian was throwing me off. The Iranian, yeah, the Iranian was throwing me off. I, I think I get all my yeah. swarthy traits from the, from the Scots, Irish, actually, but. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, another thing you probably you look like Black Irish. Yeah, 
yeah like dark mm. like black irish so yeah, yeah like like welsh you know a little bit of welsh i have like a cherokee great great grandparent like everyone else but yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly yeah yeah you know when people in canada get canceled for like claiming indigenous status like um yeah it's actually insane it's pretty yeah <laughs> um but oh man, I didn't know that. Yeah, you mean Anglo Anglo Iranian? So you're you're basically like academic agent, like you're Anglo and Iranian. I'm like, uh, you know, I would like, uh, I would be a hit in Nazi Germany because I've got like the German ancestry and like the uh, the Iranian ancestry, and then like I guess they're more or less indifferent to like the Celtic aspect. But yeah, yeah, I wonder what they. Found oh, I always forget that Irish. academic agent is a uh, 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 half Iranian. Iranian, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, what's his name? Robert Sepeter is uh, uh, also uh, uh, my co-ethnic, more or less. I Didn't people say he was Jewish or he's not Jewish? No, he's Iranian. Like, uh, what's that? I don't know. Did people say he was Jewish? Robert yeah, Sepeter? Uh, no? no, he has like a video where he like talks about his ancestry and he's just like, uh, um, he talks about like the Iranian side and then he goes to the German side and he's just like, I found that I have vanishingly little Jewish DNA, which makes sense seeing as how my grandfather was an officer in the Wehrmacht. (laughs) (laughs) He was just like very casually like drops the fact that his grandfather wasn't in the Nazi military. (laughs) My grandfather was a mechanic in the Italian air force. So he, he worked on Luftwaffe planes. Yeah. Yeah. Then no, it's my, funny. Uh, my uh, good friend Marina, uh, her uh, her great grandfather marched with the Denuncio's black shirts or brown shirts uh, uh, in, in oh, the, man. the siege of Fiume. Nice, amazing, incredible. Yeah, no, her dad still has like the family. Uh, I don't remember if it's a black shirt or a brown shirt. Like those are different eras, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, the, I have a lot uh, of different. I think it's the family black shirt, and he won't let her have it because because uh, uh, <laughs> thinks that she would enjoy it too much. It's funny, you know, I have ancestors that are both Italian, that were Italian fascists and Italian communists. My great-great-grandfather was Italian communist. That's why he actually came here to Canada to flee World, World War I because he thought that it was just an excuse for capitalists to sell guns to each other, which he was kind of correct. Oh, but like, <laughs> you know, yeah. Marina says she's like perfectly balanced because uh, her mom's family are like very pilot, pious Catholic communists and her dad dad's family are aggressively secular fascists. So. Oh, man. Oh, my God. <laughs> that reminds me of like logo on the TL warring with fascists. That's kind of like you know, <laughs> Christian communism. Oh, yeah. that's insane. <laughs> yeah, man. That's great. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, um, what was that? Oh, did you do that game where uh, uh, you connect yourself by handshakes with Hitler? Oh, no, I didn't do that. Um, oh, that was like something that was going around Twitter where, uh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, I shook hands with this person, step one, and then, you know, step two, they this shook person, hands. This person, yeah, uh, and yeah. Then you get to Hitler. Nine and I found like, Hitler. A, I, I could think of like four different ways to do it for myself, but uh, uh, I was curious if you've uh, if you've tried that. I haven't tried that. I should. I wonder. I mean, that would be that, interesting. I, I, I don't know if the most interesting one is the one that goes through Norman Finkelstein. Uh, you have a relation that, to Norman Finkelstein? Oh, yeah. He's like a he's like a good friend of mine. He, we, we hang out on the beach a lot. No, are goes, you serious? Yeah, no. He goes to like Coney Island every day. And uh, and yeah, I just met him by chance there. And he's a, uh, you know, he just like jogs in, down Coney Island in his Speedo more or less on a daily basis. Oh I used to work for God. him, actually. No way. I used to be his publicist. Really? 
Yeah, you should have him on Content Minded. Could that be possible? No, I can definitely. He's like doing a a publicity tour for uh, his new book, which is like his anti-woke manifesto, basically like anti-Ed Paul. uh, um, Very interesting. Uh, um, But uh, yeah, I think he's going to go on the Adam Friedland show. Oh man, that'd be great. Um, Man, I I could buy his, I'll buy his book and then I'll, I'll read it and I'll see, like we could hook something up, man. That'd be, yeah, no, I'd be happy to uh, put you guys in touch. That'd be um, crazy. Yeah. That'd be amazing. But um, yeah, there, no, because I think from him, I could go th- to uh, Alan Dershowitz and then to Prince Andrew. And then like everyone, almost everyone <laughs> ends up with like Queen Elizabeth to uh, um, what King Edward, the, what was it? Who was the one that like, that, that was friendly to Hitler? Edward oh, the uh, I think so. Was it Georgie? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it was Edward the seventh. Yeah. Yeah, the one um, the king's but yeah, right? and then to Hitler, or I guess like you could go from Elizabeth to Chamberlain to Hitler. Yeah, I'm not sure, but like you know, everyone ends up with like some variation of like Queen Elizabeth to Hitler. Um, yeah, it's funny the British ruling ruling class because you know, yeah. What's that? No, I was gonna say like the British ruling class is like that's like the cheat code to like getting to Hitler. So it's oh, yeah. you know, well. I have another. I I feel like there's another path which uh, uh, would go through, um, walk a flock of flame to Nardwar the human serviette. But I haven't worked out the rest of that one yet. But, uh... <laughs> oh Man, you get around. Holy shit, that's crazy. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not like uh, I'm not like really acquainted with walk a flock of flame. That was a very brief uh, encounter. Oh my but... god! Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if you could like parse the Moldbug connection. I wonder if Moldbug has a uh, like some disparate Hitlerian um, connection. I wonder. Yeah, what was the other one? Well, like his his. There was another one that involved uh uh, uh oh uh the UN Secretary General. Wait, I have it written down somewhere. Oh my god! Well, because Moldbug, you could go through like you know his his family working for the Bidens. And then like from there you could like, you know, um, you could, you could have some, <laughs> maybe some neocon connection probably. Cause uh, wasn't uh, George Bush's. Yeah, I know that I also or... have like a path through uh, Kurt Waldheim. I think, Oh, you know what it is? It's Norman Finkelstein to Noam Chomsky to Sacha Baron Cohen to Boutros Boutros Gali to uh, uh, Kurt <laughs> Waldheim. <laughs> To any number of like uh, uh, German officers to Hitler. Yeah, there you go. It's certainly it's like a crazy puzzle, man. It's like a you know, it's, wow, that's crazy. Um, man, that's man. I didn't know you, the, uh, you were his publicist. That's I'm still wilding at that. <laughs> yeah, that was very brief. That was like a very brief arrangement, but uh, um, but you know, it was yeah. cool. Yeah, it's great. Uh, Another thing, so I don't know, uh, and forgive me if you'd rather not talk about this, but uh, uh, you alluded uh, in one of your podcasts, I think to, it, I think it was uh, your weekly uh, podcast with the Prudentialist, that you'd uh, lost like a considerable amount of weight recently, right? No, not considerable. I'm I'm working on it, but um, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, maybe yeah. I misunderstood. I lost about no, fifty I was pounds in the summer. You know, just uh, like how you view like the relationship of like uh, uh, like the body to. Uh, um, 
you know, art and like, uh, and ideas. Yeah. 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 No, no, that's no, no problem. No problem. Uh, no, I, I realized like, uh, a few years ago I started like being more serious about, you know, um, my weight. And like, I discovered intermittent fasting at the, at, at the behest of another artist friend of mine. And that was always like an anxiety that I've had, especially like, you know, in right wing spaces, I feel like the connection can be overplayed because it becomes people's brand. And because of the, you know, the world that we live in does encourage like obesity and body positivity, which I think is like absolutely morally abhorrent and disgusting. Um, and, and I do think that there is, but at the, at the same time, even though I'm not in a position to talk, I do think that there is a huge connection between it's not in the way you would think though, between the body Ooh. and the work of art and, and the sort of life of mind. I feel like if you live a disordered life, it will come out physically. <laughs> right. And so mm. for many years, I mean, I still, to this day, I live somewhat of a disordered life, right? Not a normal, hmm. like not a normal, you know. So I feel like if you are of, if you embody a chaos within, you will embody a chaos without. And so mm -hmm. to be serious about getting your life in order to be more physical, to work out, to sort of like have a, a form of strength, you know, because I, I lived with like chronic pain my whole life as well, because as a result of my weight, mm -hmm. um, you know, mm -hmm. sciatica and, and chronic ankle issues and so forth. So, you know, even like last year, last year was plagued with like ankle and foot problems as I'm trying to like, oh. you know, work out more and everything. And it's, yeah, like just mm -hmm. like whole months just erased. Right. Um, so it's like when you do, you know, especially after turning 30, right. I, you start to seriously think about these things when you live a disordered wow. life, your whole, your whole like sort of basis of, of living, is affected by it right and like th this is why it's something i've always wanted to write about as well the perspective of like contemporary yeah. obesity and like living and and i feel like there's a lot of dishonesty both with like the like i agree the obsessions of health is like maybe not correct in the sense of like people make too much of it they make an idol out of it right like the whole like right-wing bodybuilder but the same token they are correct though in the sense of like when you don't address the problem that you have with your own physical self, then everything else follows from it. There, like physiognomy is is real in that sense. So I feel like mm -hmm. the whole thing about like celebrating body positivity and uh, like a lot of this stuff. Like first of all, a lot of this stuff is just basically like an extension of feminism as well. Like that's you know, that's a reality. But at the same time, like the whole um, the whole like. Uh, misinformation that comes with like oh well basically you know you're healthy at any size blah 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 like that to me is like um on a deeper level it doesn't confront the realities of living with obesity you know what i mean like it doesn't confront like yeah. the daily sort of like slog of of uh not being very physical being very sedentary and of having a lot of negative health consequences because of it so you know what i mean like you live as a to live as a prisoner of your own self, put it that way. Like that is something that I've thought about for many years and I've, I've sort of written about it in Twitter threads and all that, but having um, tr like trying to better yourself physically, 
you start to think of these things of, of sort of, of, of living life that by definition is limiting, right? Like mm-hmm. that is something I feel like is not meant that that's something that the think pieces don't really get when it comes to like, you know, issues of the body and, and like how, uh, you know, it's hard to describe. I do feel like some of the criticisms are apt in the sense of like, maybe it's not a good idea to like, uh, you know, constantly humiliate someone and like bullying and all that. But at the same time, there is something to be said about like, you know, well, it's lazy for one thing. Yeah. it's easy. And I honestly yeah, very think easy. it's boring. I mean, yeah, I, uh, I, you know, I, I also, I asked this in part because you, you, you know, you frequently like uh, in, in your podcast seem to invoke the kind of a, uh, 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 Med Gold or Zero HP Lovecraft versus uh, 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 what's his name? Um, I'm drawing a blank on his name. The guy that likes big girls. Oh, Renault Fall. Renault Fall. Yeah, <laughs> Renault. Yeah, the yeah, Renault Renault. versus uh, uh, the Renault versus Zero HP controversy. You know, yeah, she, she could gain weight. She could lose her. weight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, uh, I I don't know. I'm for what it's worth. I'm against uh, 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 feeding this kind of a. Uh, uh, you know, shaming women for fatness, not for any humanitarian or aesthetic reason, but purely because it makes them incredibly annoying. Uh, you know, yeah. you end up in a, a four hour platonic dialogue. Well, you know, that's the thing. They'll ask <laughs> you if they're fat, fat and you either say yes, which is like a, you've detonated a nuclear bomb, like, you know, no coming back from that. Or you say no, in which case they try to rope you into a four hour platonic dialogue where they're interrogating the true meaning of fatness. And just to, uh, to hear you uh, um, restate that, uh, <laughs> to hear you restate that they're thin in a, in a thousand different permutations, uh, which is not a conversation that I want to have. So purely out of an opposition to that kind of conversation, oh my God, I'm so fat. No, I am. No, shut up. You're lying to me. Don't lie to me. I know I'm fat. You know, just out of an opposition to that kind of uh, conversation that doesn't pass the Turing test, I, uh, I, yeah. I oppose feeding uh, fat shaming women. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, it's interesting. You know, I have always, you know, I was like, kind of like a, a skinny kid, you know, uh, it, it, it more on the, uh, the, the wimpy frail side. And, uh, I guess like, it, you know, it's natural to kind of have a, a chip on your shoulder because of that. Um, mm. but yeah, I'd like discovering, yeah. a, a like, uh, uh, the racist bodybuilder culture was, a uh, really, uh, exciting for me because, you know, And I had already kind of been on that wavelength, like uh, uh, in different terms before that. But um, but I don't know. It just uh, it was really exciting to me, and I and now I feel like it's kind of uh, we associate it with very uh, unsubtle and uh, uncurious people, in a sense. Yeah, you know the uh, the kind of like uh, standard BAP uh, sycophant. with very basic uh, views about classical studies and, uh, and philosophy, um, the, the self-improvement bro. But um, I don't know. I feel no, like there's something really special about that kind of just that uh, veneration of like a culture of glory, you know, like a physical oh, yeah, glory definitely. and like self. No, I, I think like one criticism is that, um, Something that like what BAP is doing is something, of course, very deep and very like there's a lot of like the perception of like the meathead bodybuilder, I think, is not apt because now like it seems that 
a bodybuilder can be like a philosophy nerd or can be like someone who is more cerebral. Like my friend, Athenian stranger is like a legit, you know, philosophy professor, yeah. you know, but he's like jacked, he's yoked. He's like, you could, you know, put him in the ring, Vince, you know what I mean? So it's yeah, like, I uh, just feel like for every, know, like uh, Athenian stranger, you get like, Oh yeah, there's AFs imitators. Or you get guys that have like big muscles and are just like, I just read Marcus Aurelius's uh, meditations and, it's very profound. He tells you how to live a better life, you know, like basically Elaine de Baton, but with muscles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, like, I think like there's a difference between like an actual Baptist and like a masculinity grifter that like, I have muscles. I just read Marcus Aurelius by my course. Like it's, they're, they're, the problem, <laughs> you know, the problem with the E-Rite in terms of like the vitalist bodybuilders is that they have enabled like imitators to be like, to grift off of like what Baptist created and like, not to name names, of course, but like, there is something to be said about like the whole like masculinity expert thing, which has existed even before that. Like, there was always like the manosphere pua. Like, it's this weird like intersection between right wing bodybuilding and and pickup artistry that I'm not really down. Yeah. I'm I'm much more of like I wrote an essay on the vitalist bodybuilder actually that was in Man's World uh, because. Oh. Um, Man's World, uh, Rag Nationalist, he actually profiles quite a bit of artwork. He profiled a lot of my artwork um, over the years. Oh, cool. So, yeah, it was a visual essay. I, 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 I'm very fond of his cookbook. Yeah, uh, yeah. Both he and Solbra, uh, whatever you may say about either one of them, they both have very uh, uh, solid cookbooks, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Rod, ben, Iggs Benedict Option is a really great book. Uh, he, he came on my podcast, he reviewed it. But he, uh, I did this visual essay where I did 10 or 11 um, abstract works of handsome Thursday physique posts. <laughs> and uh -huh. I wrote this visual essay in the vitalist bodybuilder. And uh, so Rod Nashless, he, he does profile quite a bit of artwork from different people in the scene and uh, in, in man's world magazine. And, you know, I, I recently I did, a, I had this uh, excerpt from my Covidian essay that had a lot of my drawings in it too, as well. So, um, no, but yeah, so I think like I'm much more of like the Athenian stranger, like philosophic view of of the sort of vitalist bodybuilder than like a lot of these like cheap, like wannabe Andrew Tate mas like masculinity grifters. Like this is a very odd phenomenon of like the masculinity like thing that I feel is kind of not the point. Like even like, you know, I, I let's face it. Like I'm, I would lie to you if I didn't say that during the 2010s, I was consuming a lot of the manosphere content, like a lot of the MRM stuff. Uh -huh. Like, you know, yeah. So yeah. like, yeah, we were all there. I mean, that wasn't know? really like, my wheelhouse. You know, I, I, I was mm -hmm. kind of late to that. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. To that way. But, uh, um, I mean, it's Not funny now, stuff, <laughs> like, I, I feel like I interact with the Manosphere now more like, or like the post Manosphere and its aftermath than the, the real thing from the, from the Fountainhead, you know? Yeah. But, uh, yeah. The real like Chateau Hertis, uh, Rouge, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, no, Rouge yeah. is like, uh, uh, one of two people to like, give me like a rejection to the beautiful toilet. Most people either, uh, uh don't respond or say yes, but, uh, Rouge and Van Dyke parks are the two, uh, people I've reached out to who promptly responded and said no. So really, he said he wished though? me well. So. Oh, um, I don't know. I can't imagine. I mean, some people, I guess are deterred by the name. The only uh, person that rejected me was Nicolo Salo, but that's because he doesn't want to oh, do really? any podcasts. Yeah. After the red scare one, he's like, no, oh, that's a shame. Not he's doing very anything. good at talking. 
Yeah, I know, eh? That would be he, great. He, he's yeah. a natural podcast guest, I feel. Um, but yeah. Which is so yeah, hard uh, when he denies it, though. He denies it in himself. That's the problem. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Oh, the only issue is uh, his lack of self-esteem, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's because he wants to focus. He just like, didn't he, believe in himself. <laughs> I think it's because of his sub stack. That's probably why he, he doesn't go on other people's uh, things, you know, like that's why he nuked Saliforums. If you know, yeah, um, such a shame. It's pity. Well, there's an uh -huh. archive though. There's an archive of Saliforums. Um, so, Oh really? Oh yeah. No one yeah, told me this. I'm, I'm hearing this now for the first time. Oh yeah, there's an archive of everything. I believe the Amarna forums uh, keeps it up. So, yeah. Nice. Or I think Chadnet has it. I think Chadnet has a link. You know that account Chadnet? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, Chadnet has an archive of a lot of different dissident stuff, including like a full archive of Chateau Hertis. Because you know, like WordPress nuked them. So, mm -hmm. Chadnet's. If you look at Chadnet on Twitter, it's got the archive. So oh, cool. it's also like, I'll look into it. Thanks yeah, it's sharing. also like an early 2000s coding I, uh, website. Uh, I have to get going relatively soon, but. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, no problem. Yeah, me too, actually. It's actually, I'm going to think about dinner, so. Oh, sorry. I, I, I think we had like a connection issue and uh, I didn't catch what you were saying until later, but. Um, oh, no, yeah, you said, uh, no, I, about Chadnet? Yeah, I think it, like it came out like in a clip to kind of uh, after the fact thing. Oh, no, I, I said that uh, Chadnet has the website that's like an early 2000s, like, archive site. It's pretty crazy. It's I like it. Uh -huh. I like, uh, like oh, I'm cool. a sucker for that. Early, then. Yeah, like, I'm a sucker for early internet stuff, man. Like, I'm a total, like, Y2K head. Uh -huh. so. Are you into, yeah. uh, uh, are you into two blowhards at all? I haven't heard of two blowhards. What is two blowhards? Oh, that was a uh, two blowhards was like an old blog in like the uh, like 2006 circa. Oh um, yeah, and that's where yeah. Both, yeah, uh, yeah. both Yarvin and Forney got their starts uh, as commenters on two blowhards. It was like a uh, uh, Yarvin would like post comments about his monarchist views, and like the two blowhards thought it was like interesting enough that they invited him to write a guest post explaining his worldview, and that was uh, the genesis of unqualified reservations. Oh, that's right. Yeah, someone else told me an old hat. Another old hat told me about this. Yeah. No, I. The name no, I'm not an old head. I'm. I, I was like, I was like <laughs> ten years old through all of this. But I, you know, I'm like a, I'm a historian. You know. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Two. Yeah. Two blowhards was um, but then people said like Yarvin came out of something, uh, not something awful. Um. Oh, what's it called? Big Yud. Less wrong. Less wrong. Was Yarvin part of Less Wrong or he? Hovered uh, I'm around. not sure about that connection. Yeah, I wonder. Because um, some people say, like, because, you know, he's coded as the rationalist. I guess to wrap up, what do you think of the rational, the new rats, the rationalists? I mean, you have a connection. With I, I mean, I'm kind of fond of the way that they think. I mean, you know, I had a, a, a post where uh, it, it, I was lamenting the fact that when you think, when people say rationalist, they mean this, and it's a picture of Ayla and not this, and it's a picture of Leibniz. But uh, um, <laughs> I kind of like their. Uh, uh, yeah. their, their precision about like breaking ideas down uh, in, in a very particular way. Uh, um, obviously, like, I guess like a method or like a, like a kind of epistemological method is insufficient to create like a very uh, stable worldview. Mm -hmm. um, oh, and exactly. that's kind of where 
you run into trouble. But like, I mean, you can kind of like take that approach to almost anything. And uh, I, I think it can be clarifying at times. Uh, so I'm a, a friendly to the rationalists community, I would say. You know, I, obviously they have their weird uh, uh, sex thing, which I'm not a part of, but uh, um, yeah, you know, rationalists, like they're, they're all, uh, they're cool, uh, notwithstanding the weird sex thing. I'm I'm much more critical of them. I think like I'm I'm much more critical oh, really? of their worldview. But yeah, like because you know I how feel so? like uh, um how should I say? It? I feel like that form of reason can only like you said can only get you so far. But also like the weird sex like here's the thing, the weird sex thing is obviously a product of their worldview. You know they're like fedora tip, mm. like a lot of like the reason you go from like that type of secular rationalism to Ayala, like that line is very like direct to me in my, in my like trad calf mind. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there is something to be said of the vivisection of values, but yet filling it in with something that by definition can only be a product of like liberal modernity is like, um, mm -hmm. not my cup of tea, put it that way. I feel like, uh, like, plus like, I'm just not a, I'm not like a numbers guy. I'm not a math guy. I'm not intrigued by that. I think a lot of science is fake. Well, not all science is fake, but like a lot of um, the predication of value on that sort of like hyper rationalism that's not a, like attached to a, a greater structure of logos is not my cup of tea. But put it that way. Um, well, the, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. Well, that's like I think that the issue that you're uh, that you're alluding to is that like what we mean in the modern sense of rationalist, as in like the yeah. kind of secular rationalist, kind of the opposite of like the true like you know 18th century rationalist, yeah, which yeah, is post uh, resolutely skeptical of empirical like of knowledge by induction. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. I mean, and uh, I think that there's a lack of clarity for the most part in terms of like this more meta philosophical issue among members of the what we call the rationalists or post rationalist community, where they're both rationalist and empiricist and are not really interested in meta epistemology. Um, right. Which right. to me is like uh, really damning. But um, but at the same time, it, it like that level of autism, at the very least, it can function as a, a clarifying way to uh, a, a, to make you more consistent with the premises of your worldview, which I think it does have right. that effect, because you know, if you have like a scientific secular worldview, um, I, I've seen many a, a rationalist to kind of meme themselves into hard scientific racism just by kind of applying like rationalist principles. Oh, yeah. To, uh, um, Richard Hanania. Yeah. yeah yeah more or less yeah. and it's like you know that's like a, a way of it's just like a mechanism to kind of create the more internally consistent version of any position but of course i'm uh radically skeptical of empiricism so uh to the degree mm -hmm. that that's like a part of like the the so-called rationalist uh program i would say that i uh, am a, a critic of it but yeah but yeah i don't even know like to what degree they have the vocabulary to kind of uh uh engage with that because i mean regard almost like across all ideologies like i think there's a widespread uh inability to really defend or clarify first premises and uh, uh to justify the assumptions that one makes yeah i feel like well especially nowadays i mean we all do it to an extent like there's a lot of unconscious 
things that are attached to I'm in this ideological group and therefore the basis of it is less important than the instantiation of its values or principles. But at the end of the day, I mean, I struggle with this as well because it's like, you know, to think of first principles is obviously difficult, but also to think of like, this is my ideological shelling point from which every single opinion can proliferate. I can give you an approximation of that given certain key like ideological issues. I can more or less like construct what your worldview is. Like what's your opinion on this? Uh, I can give you this. Right. But when it comes to like the basis of it to me, like, you know, the, the, the vitalists are correct in the sense of like gut fauna is just as much a part of like your ideology than a lot of other things, you know, like a lot of like in some ways, ideology, ideology can become unconscious. And nowadays, you know, when the image, like we were going, we were talking about before the picture of something is more important than what is at its base. Uh-huh. And given that, you know, given that assumption of most people, like you were saying, like the thought of first principles and, and to like work up from that is almost like, uh, there's something very like, uh, how should I say it? There's some, not just unconscious, but there's something very like instinctual there, right? Like mm-hmm. why, why do people gravitate to certain ideas? To me, it's something almost cosmic in a sense, almost like the reason mm-hmm. people develop an ideological disposition has to do with so many other things that aren't directly mediated by conscious thought. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's so, like a descriptive yeah. point, right? Like, uh, right, right. But, but we'll describe what you mean. Like, what you mean? Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. It's like procedurally incorrect to believe things without a reason, and right, I mean, right. you know, the difficult thing is that uh, uh, you cannot but make assumptions in epistemology. You know, even if you right. want to be like a pure skeptic, you know, you kind of uh, uh, assume your ability to like discern like that that kind of skepticism or to like uh, uh, positively assert it. So. Um, you know, that's well, the like correlation the between what I observe and what is there. There, there has to be the assumption. Yeah, something but I, I, I just think that uh, uh, you know, epistemology should kind of uh, collapse to with as few assumptions as possible. Uh, you know, try to extrapolate and build a worldview, and then test worldviews against each other for internal consistency and explanatory power. And uh, um, that uh, basically, at no point does admitting empiricism give you a more cohesive or explanatory, or like assuming empiricism give you a more cohesive or explanatory worldview, because like the mm-hmm. experience is like totally tautological. It only tells you that you experience it, and doesn't necessarily right. inherently like allude to any external reality. And no empiricist will really like stand by like uh, you know the, the the fringe cases of like a, a you know a schizophrenic that believes that waffles are telling them to kill the president or um you know the um so even though that is yeah. like an empirical reality so it, it just seems like it actually like to allow for that at at any but a very very late stage of epistemology and even then with significant caveats is uh basically unhelpful and that's why you know i i uh, i resent the kind of a uh, ge more type uh oh well you're overthinking it if you well how do i know my hand is in front of my face because i see it there duh <laughs> <laughs> lazy it's just like if yeah. GE more is like if poop was a philosopher could you imagine <laughs> a shittier philosopher one that suspends the principle of sufficient reason at such little like at such a like for such frivolous reasons 
Yeah, yeah, no. But that's what he, like what you're saying is essentially like um like like empiricism can almost like you can almost meme yourself into becoming like a solipsist by saying like, well, because I experience it in my head it's real, therefore it's real. Um, you uh-huh. know, the outside world could not exist, but as long as I'm experiencing that existence, it's like very much like that in the brain. Like it's a weird way of going mm-hmm. at it, if that makes sense. Maybe I'm totally yeah, I know it's been it's been quite a while since my philosophy, my philosophy degree. Yeah, but, it just uh, seems like procedurally yeah. incorrect to extrapolate from any sensory experience any kind of external reality. Yeah, no, that's true because no, but even like throwing that sensory experience into doubt, which is a very like literal thousands of years old motif in philosophy, to like just upend it and say, you know what, that that like basic Cartesian doubt is not real and doesn't exist. I mean that's kind of like we know this because our senses are violated all the time. There's always conditions in which our senses fail us. I mean, this is Uh even like within a Kantian system, you could say like, this is what Deleuze was alluded to that like the schizophrenic upends that essential Kantian system of like, to Mm -hmm. like sort of like positing um, the, like positing the faculties of the understanding and reason motivating those faculties. The schizophrenic obviously clearly violates that. Like, but even in, in, in you know, in like pure empiricism, we know that the senses mm-hmm. fail us all the time. When you have a stroke, people smell burnt toast, even though burnt toast is not there. Right. Like mm-hmm. it's like, well, but I guess that doesn't matter. Like, or unless you're doing some like weirdo. Chamber, yeah, it just like, like chamber it, it just stuff. doesn't seem to yield like internally consistent results. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. It, it, you know, (laughs) to quote a Norman Mailer, it offends my sense of intellectual pollution. It's like (laughs) really, uh, uh, really egregious. Uh, um, Yeah, exactly. Get it off. Get it off of me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, like, there's too many damn philosophers, like so-called philosophers that only deal with like, kind of like second order contingent uh, uh, facts or realities. You know, they've only read like Simone Weil or like, uh, uh, you know, maybe Deleuze if they're, uh, uh, you know, if they're uh, one of the better, more informed ones. But like, they have like almost no interest in like the meta issues and purely like uh, these like very contingent second order realities. I think that's the same like uh, uh, insipid stew that breeds like a a kind of like Afro-pessimism and what we now call critical race theory colloquially. Like, um, Where, like, oh, this like thing that this thing that, as I've said, is like very contingent, right? It's like, yeah, it's it's an empirical kind of a, a reality with like its own implications, but it's there. You can't like build a fucking epistemology off of race, like, uh, regardless of you know, it's just like maybe an, you an, can. An but I mean, you'd have to. Like, it's yeah. a frivolous foundation. There's no reason to suppose that it's like a, a um that it should be like one of the first things, one, one of the a priori or, or uh, foundations of a worldview. Maybe though, I don't know, because then hmm, I hope I don't get in trouble here, but no, I, I think like it is important because it is a fa- is a facticity of life that doesn't inevitably inform ideology and inform your way of viewing things. Um, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I'm much more of that side. I do like, I do agree with like in that sense of it, but, but uh, finally, what, what is your critique of Afro pessimism? What, what do you find is uh, um, so egregious about it? I, 
You know, when I was in college, I started reading it because uh, uh, I was kind of, I, I endeavored to understand why seemingly smart people were very smitten with it. And mm. uh, it, it eventually emerged to me that there was like nothing there, that it was like, uh, um, I, I guess it is like uh, uh, the attempt to extrapolate like very core uh, uh, philosophical premises from like very contingent and immediate realities, which I think is just like uh, inherently backwards and misguided. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, it's uh, like a lot of, fact, I guess like uh, the crude yeah. version of it would be like the, the, the fact of like the oppression of black people is so uh, uh, overwhelming, uh, you know, yeah. it, it, without even engaging with like the supposed oppression of black people. Um, but the that that fact is so overwhelming that uh that it actually precedes uh the correct foundations of uh epistemic and moral reasoning what the fuck you can't do that you could do that with anything like it, it mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. i don't yeah, know it no just seems like a very like uh destabilizing sorry i'm on What's my high horse a little bit i i really ought to get on my low horse but uh, um no, but no, but it's true. Like saying, like, um, I mean, I, I, I'm much more a fan of Afrofuturism. Obviously, uh, I feel like that there's a lot of like fertile ground there. Um, but like when it comes to Afropessimism, it's sort of like saying there's no such thing as poetry after the you know what, right? It's like, yeah, you know, something's so monumental that um, it 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 like terminates all sort of thought or possibility, and from there, like, what really distinguishes mm -hmm. like uh, like, I don't know, a libtard from like a woke critical race theory academic, when you actually look at the rhetoric, not very much, right? Mm. Like, I mean, yeah. there's a reason for that because like, there's a reason why like a, like a radical, like, I don't know, like a, a Marxist professor votes for Bernie or whatever, mm -hmm. like, or votes for Biden. It's like, there's, there's obviously like, you know, that's like when it comes to like rubber meaning the road, there's obviously something there that like, guides them into consensus thinking when it comes to like particular ideological attributes of the regime maybe because they have no choice but there's like obviously something there like the crypto dem thing is real but like mm -hmm. I, I don't know maybe my thoughts are not very well, uh maybe the uh you know with the uh, with regards to like the concept of like no poetry after the hullabaloo you know uh yeah maybe uh uh say no philosophy rather if that right, were the case which it isn't because like there are like uh philosophers who survived that it, it but like mm -hmm. even if that were the case um then you would have to constitute that as like a disability imposed by the trauma that prevents right. you from like clear reasoning there's no reason to suppose that like that experience is inherently like valid if it like disables you from undertaking like the correct epistemological reasoning and i guess like yeah, if you really, if you actually like care about the truth or whatever, and you believe the premises of Afro pessimism, you would just have to conclude that black people can't do philosophy or have any access to yeah. truth whatsoever. It's almost like yeah, the, like the, the horseshoe theory of like Afro pessimism yeah. meeting in the middle with like extreme racism, like extreme oh, like a yeah. forums level, like total oh. you know what death. Like it's like you yeah, have the yeah. Afro pessimist. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, that's a that's like a nuclear take. We gotta end on that one. <laughs> but no, I think Afro pessimism. I haven't read yeah. as I haven't read as much as I should, but I think like a lot of it is kind of stultifying. But I do like think that there is something there, like within hmm. the milieu of like 
um, whatever you want to call it, critical race theory, like post-colonial studies within that milieu, like from Fanon onwards, like you could see the argument, but I feel, I just feel like embracing more of an Afrofuturist position is much more meaningful and much more life affirming than, I mean, from an outsider's perspective, like I acknowledge, like, of course I'm not like, you know, a, a bi POC. I don't, you know what I mean? But from an outsider's perspective, at least I feel like there's much more interesting like things to play with within the framework of Afrofuturism from Sun, like even Sun Ra, like I'm a huge fan of Sun Ra. Hmm. Uh, like, you know, there's something there. Like there's, there's something way more like, I, mean, I think it's a, and it's meaningful. an aesthetic and you can yeah. like draw like philosophical wisdom from it, but I just don't think it's like a complete uh, philosophical system, you know? No, of course not. No, of course. I mean, maybe there will be like, more like kudo s ones in the future i'm I'm butchering his name but you know the one who wrote more brilliant than the sun um uh-huh. like there's i think there will be more people like that but as it is now it is like kind of inarticulated like there has like it's in it's in its workings right even like afro like that's even like you were saying like afro pessimism is like sort of like an ephemera of an ephemera you know, yeah. so it's like it's a second well, I, order. I, I guess my issue is that it's a usurpation of uh, correct ways of thinking or like procedurally correct ways of thinking by very uh, uh, it, frivolous and kind of a secondary or like not even tertiary, just like uh, mm-hmm. by like the political issues of like a very particular moment in history. It, it, it's like. Like if you had a, a philosophy that's like, oh, before we, we can't even talk about epistemology, we have to uh, talk about the Democrat problem. And like you call it like yeah. a Democrat pessimism. And like, you know what I mean? It's just like you're confusing like this. We're supposed to be a little bit more abstract and, you know, create a framework by which to adjudicate like these like uh, a tertiary kind of uh, things later down the line it's like an artificial like it's an artificial like uh antecedent if like you're putting something in front of something that's ancient something that's modern you're putting in front of something very ancient which is philosophy itself and it's not just it's old saying, it's like, we like can't eternal even get at it's it. like it's timeless right like like yeah reason yeah. itself is timeless it's not like you know philosophy develops our, our ways of understanding it are are historically contingent but Right, um, right. The thing itself that it's trying to get at is eternal. Um, it's transhistorical, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it's eternal. It's but but saying like placing a relatively recent invention in front of the eternal and being like, you know what, we can't even begin until we address like my own like right and even if it's not like a relatively recent invention right it's like uh the particular expression of it is the particular circumstances uh, of like uh, the ways that like the races interact with each other is very uh contingent yeah. you know so yeah. i uh i really have to be on my way relatively soon i have to go to dinner with grandma but oh uh, okay yeah so so maybe yeah we'll do you have any uh, final thoughts or uh no my brain's kind of fried right now so after a few but no it yeah, was a great yeah. conversation i wasn't expecting that it was pretty you know it's nice to like sit back and like reflect on things and Oh, I really liked you. it. Thank I really you. enjoyed it, man. Yeah, it's no, really me too. Great. And uh, it's yeah. been real. But yeah, yeah, anything you want to plug or other than uh, you um, know. yeah, just my podcast, Content Minded, and you know, every Thursday with the Prudentialist, um, Digital Archipelago, um, Substack, my pa- Patreon.com, so Shannon Productions, but also Substack at a 
Geo's content corner because I, I, I so basically if you don't want to give money for Patreon, um, all the free and archived versions of my podcast and of course all of my articles are on Substack. I really love Substack. I'm a big fan of Substack. I mm-hmm. want to grow it. Um, but Patreon's cool as well. Um, you know, different tiers will give to you different artwork and cool swag, like a nice mug at the twenty dollar tier. Um, so yeah, that's all. You can find my links. Twitter is, of course, my biggest platform. So you know, gi- at Giant Geo. You know, yeah, just go, just put my link tree in the description. My link tree has everything. Okay, so cool. yeah, including all my article lists as well. So it sounds good. Yeah, man. All, all right. right. Well, have a good evening. Thanks so much. You too. God bless. Okay.